it's not being looked at properly as like a realistic scenario. Say by 2030, you could have several countries that have um, you know meaningful holdings of Bitcoin, um, you know, as part of this you know geoeconomic arrangement, and this is like a way for them to hedge. Hello there from Nashville in Tennessee. How are you all doing? You having a good week? Me and Danny out here making a bunch of shows. We've had some really great guests. Really looking forward to getting these shows out to you. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today on the show, I've got Matthew Pines back. Now, this one is a bit of a monster. We went for over two hours discussing the economic war between China and the USA. Now, Matthew wrote a brilliant article, The Future Geopolitical Order and Bitcoin, an initial assessment. And once we'd read this, we knew we had to get him on the show and discuss it. Now, he's an incredibly knowledgeable person. This show could have been so much longer. And I'm definitely going to get him back because there's a whole bunch of other things we didn't even have time to get into. Now, if you want to get in touch, you've got any questions about this, please do reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Matthew, good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Uh, any any time. Okay, uh, this, we're going to get in some deep topics here today. Uh, I know you've been on the show before, but if people are lis- like listening now and they haven't listened, we'll definitely go back and listen to the other show. But can you just give people like an intro to who you are and the work you do? Certainly. So uh, I have a sort of a non-traditional background. My undergrad was in physics and philosophy. I did a master's in philosophy and public policy. Found my way to uh, DC, worked for the National Science Foundation for two years, and then stumbled into consulting for the government on sort of range of projects for the past 10 years. Um, Generally, the through line is helping the government sort of think through and prepare for uh, bad scenarios and then uh, assess how they're prepared for those bad scenarios. And then also along the way, do various assessments of emerging technology um, and sort of jump around from project to project. Uh, I originally shifted last year uh, away from sort of government-focused security consulting to private sector security consulting. So I joined a firm called the Krebs Samos Group, uh, which is a startup uh, focusing on the intersection of geopolitical and cybersecurity risk and really advising multinationals, um, sort of like their senior sort of business strategy. And so I uh, recently took over as the director for security intelligence there. Uh, I'm also uh, affiliated with the Bitcoin Policy Institute as a national security fellow. About a year ago, connected with, with, the, with those guys and really trying to help you know, put out some you know, rigorous, long form and insightful analysis, at least I think, on uh, the intersection of Bitcoin and US national security. So yeah, I jump around and try to, you know, uh, keep myself busy. Uh, And what are some of those bad scenarios (laughs) that we should be worried about right now? Well, right now, uh, well, that's a a Pandora's box. Um, So, you know, geopolitically, right, we're entering an environment of increasing tension. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, And there's things that are going to be, you know, the the major flashpoints everyone focuses on, like Ukraine, like Taiwan, like US, uh, US China, you know, continued frictions across lots of different policy domains. But there's lots of things that, you know, when you have an environment that we're in where you know, folks are trying to challenge the status quo order, um, you can have volatility erupt in places maybe you didn't expect. And lots of, you know, interdependencies can sort of cascade. And so there's lots of risks. There's risks, you know, from type of security, risks from, you know, novel pandemics that, you know, these things aren't going to go back in the bottle. Um, risks just from, you know, how modern societies confront the rising risks themselves and sort of the uh, reflexivity that our political systems are maybe not necessarily uh, sort of postured for. So yeah, there's a lot there. We can go on any one of those risks. Um, but uh, yeah, one of the things I, I did over a number of years was help the you know, government think through those things systematically. One of, the, one of the things the US government tries to do is, you know, try to be prepared for lots of bad things. Even if they're low probability, high consequence events, you want to have a plan for them. Um, and so you don't necessarily, you know, expect there to be a low yield nuclear device going off in a city. 
But if it does, that would be like a catastrophic event. So you have to you know, prepare and plan for, for that type of scenario. So um, yeah, did, did, did those sorts of things for, for a number of years. And you've obviously been down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. You've come out of it as somebody who's pro-Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, why so? Like, why are you pro-Bitcoin? And why do you think it's important for America to adopt and allow for Bitcoin to flourish? Well, that's, yeah, that's, that gets to, I think, one of the larger theses I have about, you know, the coming decade, which is the major sources that underpinned American hegemonic power are going to be increasingly challenged by both adversaries, you know, aggressively attempting to undermine those sources of national power, but also just sort of what you would imagine is just sort of inevitable decay of institutional systems when you reached a peak power and the systems that were designed or optimized for a certain global environment maybe aren't so well suited to a changing global and, te- and technological and cultural environment. And I think our overall institutional framework, including our monetary arrangement, are sort of struggling to keep pace with both the sort of endogenous decay of those institutional structures as well as the aggressive sort of exogenous um, attack that, that our adversaries are attempting uh, to, 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 to place, uh, to sort of you know, reset the global order on their terms. Um, and so I see Bitcoin sort of as one element of how to you know, think through navigating this turbulent geopolitical period uh, as like a backup plan, at least in the, in, the, in the medium term, because we're placing a lot of chips on, you know, you know, the existing structures, in particular the U.S. Treasury market, which, in my view, is um, you know going to be an increasing increasing source of vulnerability uh, and a source of fragility in sort of the global monetary system, which underpins U.S. global hegemonic power ultimately. And that the function of the U.S. Treasury security, in particular, as the global reserve asset, sort of underpinning the global monetary system and the global trade and finance system that everyone's sort of become used to for the past fifty years. Um, when that system starts to reach points of vulnerability. Um, that you know, puts the U.S. sort of position in, in jeopardy. And I think we need to explore, you know, even non-traditional sort of backup plans, uh, you know, just to kind of put a bumper sticker on it, right? Like there are, you know, serious attempts that our adversaries are going to uh, try to take to, to, to use the, the vulnerabilities that exist in the, in the global financial system against us. Um, and, you know, our plan A is to, you know, double down the U.S. Treasury security market and do what we can to, you know, enforce financial repression and, you know, keep that market as stable as possible. Um, but that is, you know, maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. What if it, what if it fails? And our adversaries are, are you know, attempting to recreate, um, you know, a Eurasian commodity block where they can, you know, uh, try to de-dollarize as much as they can to insulate themselves from sanctions um, and to sort of carve out a sphere of influence where they can be protected from, from U.S. interference. And, we don't really have a really good strategy other than to sort of reinforce what we've already been doing for the past, you know, uh, 20, 30 years. Um, and so I think Bitcoin is a, is, a, is a novel phenomenon that's emerging to this very complicated and contested geopolitical environment that's not really being explored. And so the first thesis I have is it just needs to be looked at seriously. Um, that's like the first objective. Um, and then think through, uh, you know, in a more you know, serious way. Like, what would be the conditions under which we could seek to take advantage relative to our adversaries if Bitcoin were to succeed this decade? And what would be the um, you know, second order consequences that uh, could redound to our relative advantage against our adversaries? If they're trying to move towards um, more of an analog 19th century cold style system and to pair that with a view of, of global um, uh, sort of uh, state relations that also harkens back to that period, kind of the concept of Europe, uh, sort of great powers, carve up the world kind of idea, Okay, well, that's not a very attractive kind of proposition. Um, 
And if they're moving towards analog gold, can we sort of pivot to digital gold as a, as a backup plan? And so that's an interesting sort of thesis. I think there are other consequences that need to be analyzed for that. I wasn't saying we just need to go all in on Bitcoin tomorrow, right? This is these are big world historical structural um, factors that that are are going to become you know major questions um, and live issues this decade. So I think just you know first order business is you know treating Bitcoin with sort of intellectual seriousness and seriousness from a geopolitical and national security perspective, um, and start putting it on the table and, and thinking through how we can take advantage of it. When you talk about uh, adversaries, mm-hmm. um, do you apply any kind of moral framework to how this kind of adversarial relationships mm-hmm. work? And in doing so, uh, I. Are there fair criticisms that you can make back at the United States mm. to see why these countries aren't working into a, into a maybe more cooperative way? Well, so my first step is to try to just treat things purely analytically. And sometimes that means you have to be um, you know, apolitical first. It's just to understand what is the structure of power? What are the historical dynamics? What are the national interests at stake? That's sort of in the school of international relations, like realism, right? It's just to understand and make sure that you're not clouding your view of what is by what you think should be. Because um, sometimes folks, you know, will want to impose a view that is, you know, maybe what they desire, what they think is morally good um, from what, you know, they should accurately assess is the current state of the situation or what is like a likely, um, you know, evolution of, of, the, of, of the global environment. But I think you have to be committed to certain principles. <laughs> like so, but I think I separate those two uh, in, in, bit, in different buckets, right? First is trying to understand as, as rigorously as possible the current uh, balance of power arrangements. What are the systems, both financial systems, economic systems, political systems, military systems, intelligence systems, cultural systems, systems of elite power production? Like all these are the systems that dominate our global environment that set the rules and set the patterns of constraint and motivation that drive our, our global order. Just trying to understand what those things are. It's like first condition. It's very hard, almost impossible. And then saying, okay, what is a desirable state of affairs, right? What is a better situation? And I think like for me, you know, there are clear differences in worldviews between what you might call like the rules-based little order, you know, dominated by the West and sort of the rising, you know, authoritarian challengers. Um, you might you know, call the kind of a, a axis of authoritarians emerging out of, out of Eurasia. Um, and they have very different worldviews that are also historically explainable, right? They have a very different you know, cultural background, very different political environment, very different historical experience. Um, but I think as someone who lives in the West that has a commitment to liberal values and freedom of expression and rule of law and human rights, like these are things that I would like to succeed relative to the political projects of, say, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so, like, when it comes down to it, like, my personal views are that, yeah, I would much rather have there be a world that is um, much more open, much more, uh, you know, uh, aligned with uh, individual autonomy and freedom of expression than, than a world that involves, um, you know, state coercion and oppression and oligarchic, uh, you know, rent extraction. Like, these are things that I would not want to see succeed in the world. Um, but I think it's important to separate that moral view from just a realistic assessment of how the world could, could evolve. Like the world doesn't necessarily, um, you know, uh, align to your, your normative prescriptions. And so like when considering this kind of balance of power, mm-hmm. um, the U S has been the dominate, you know, dominant, arguably only superpower for the last couple of decades. Um, I'm sure some Russians listening would argue back. Um, but we have seen the rise of China. Is there a distinct possibility that this balance of power will shift and that maybe China could become the dominant global power? So there's uh, quite a live debate over the structure of the global power arrangement. Um, in particular, you know, different scenarios that have been sort of put under the umbrella of unipolarity, bipolarity, 
and multipolarity. There's a fringe view that thinks that China, you know, would just like take over and become the new unipolar hegemon. I think that's still kind of a fringe view, but that still opens the door for, you know, quite a wide range of scenarios that involve a relative diminution of US unipolar hegemonic power and potential distribution of more decentralized um, uh, sort of arrangements, what you might call like a multipolar system, um, or an arrangement where it's basically just like a new Cold War, right? Where we sort of divide up the world as a bifurcation between sort of a Sinocentric system and a US-led system. And those sorts of, um, you know, those two systems essentially have to you know, figure out how to not blow each other up over the over the coming decades. So that's a, that is the live debate. Um, I, I hear, you know, uh, convincing arguments. Um, for me, it, it all comes down to timescales, right? Like what is, um, what is your, what kind of question are you trying to, to ask? And if you say, you know, is U.S. going to lose its global hegemonic position next year? Very unlikely. 2030 is an open question. And I think that's really where, you know, for me, I sort of set the time horizon for any sort of analysis is, you know, five, 10 years is probably the most um, important period to really assess. I think that's where a lot of these latent uh, sort of dynamics and friction points in the global system are going to come to a head. Um, and you're going to see, if you're going to see a disruption to the global order, you're going to see it probably the next five or 10 years. Now, how it shakes out is an open question. And for me, the concerning part is usually if you look through history, these environments where you have a status quo of power, um, you know, that, that is, you know, in charge of global security, that uh, its currency is the global reserve currency, um, it sets the rules basically of the global arrangement um, and other powers essentially defer to it. Uh, when, that, when that system starts getting challenged by rising, strengthening military powers, economic powers, and powers especially that have an ideological view that runs counter to the system of rules that the status quo power wants to impose, usually those don't end up going so peacefully, right? Usually those end up with a great power confrontation where ultimately the sort of tit for tat escalation of economic war, of trade war, of proxy war, of influence campaigns, of destabilization, of covert operations, and, and other sorts of things that always happen in the shadows, usually those don't tip the balance. Usually those are the sort of prelude to, you know, a confrontation, a decisive conflict that sets um, the, the terms for what comes after. So the winner gets to uh, write new rules if they're the you know, uh, if they're the resurgent uh, challenger or they fail and the status quo power basically gets a new lease on life. And that is, that I think is the environment we're going to be facing in the next few years is, is really China is, is going to attempt to try to, um, you know, uh, you know, rise and, and carve out a, a larger sphere of influence and the U.S. is going to challenge it and try to contain it. And that can spill over into lots of, lots of bad scenarios. And with your work, are you only looking at how it shakes out or do you also consider defensive moves to stop this? So my day-to-day -day job is as the director of security intelligence for Krebs Samus Group, we help advise multinationals on the really the how these geopolitical trends are going to uh, intersect with uh, the business environment and cybersecurity risks in particular. So there's like a tactical translation of this strategic question down to, you know, how multinationals posture themselves for a world that's going to be very different than the world that they built their businesses for the past 20, 30 years. You know, globalization, especially premised on China's opening, where Western capital poured into China and there was massive technology transfer. There was, you know, entire rewriting of the global trade and supply chain system, production system uh, to China. And that is a system that's very hard to just reverse. But they're clear sort of um, national priorities from the West, and, and, and now it's translating a lot into boardrooms, is to reverse that. But it's very hard. Like, these are very complex networks and investments and sort of structures that were built up over 20, 30 years. And they don't just, you know, flip on a dime. Um, 
And so that is a lot of what like day to day is helping navigate uh, this terrain for you know companies that you know have have to balance very different interests, right? And some have um, exposure to you know, uh, like onshore manufacturing facilities, some have exposure to supply chain risks, some have exposure, you know, from a digital threat environment, um, uh, insider threats. So there's a, this, this sort of larger geopolitical story, you know, starts to have these second order consequences down to how businesses think about their risk environment and how they think about the competitive landscape in the next several years. Um, and there's only so much you can try to predict, right? And a lot of these companies also have to hedge their bets. And that itself can be a self-perpetuating uh, sort of feedback loop, right? Where if you think that there's a material chance of, say, a Taiwan event that might disrupt supply chains, you have to hedge against that risk now, even if you think it's a low probability event, but it becomes a material scenario that you, as a, as a fiduciary to your shareholders, has to like plan for. And then all your competitors have to do the same thing. And that can create you know, a momentum to sort of de-risk your China operations that involves moving and relocating and building up redundancies and you know, changing the way your, your network architectures are structured. And these things are expensive. Uh, they're often um, you know, very complicated. Uh, and, and that's really the situation we're in right now is sort of the globalized sort of multinational um, uh, structure that was premised for you know, 20, 30 years on basically China seamlessly integrating into the global system is really breaking uh, or it's in the process of, of posturing for a potential break, uh, which, which involves basically, um, you know, a pretty substantial reordering of, of, those sorts of, of those sorts of structures. And so in terms of it breaking, like mm-hmm. what are the, what is like the key evidence? What are the things that you're seeing that highlights that it's breaking? Well, breaking for me, so I study physics. And so I think about these as like um, complex nonlinear systems, right? Where you can hit them like glass, you can tap on glass and you get some vibration. You know, you're, 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 you're perturbing it in some way, but it's not materially changing its structure. And then you know there's some threshold point, not quite sure exactly what it is, that if you increase the force of that perturbation, uh, it breaks, it change, it's, it's sort of a phase transition. You boil water to 99 degrees, you start seeing some bubbles and then you go to 100 degrees and now it you know, starts you know, showing very different dynamics. And I think we're in that like tap, tap, tap with increasing force or turning up the, the heat. Uh, you know, closer to 99 degrees, where you don't know how far away you are from that like critical threshold point where you might enter into a new regime where, you know, you go from a regime of kind of stable feedback loops that start to, you know, you, you hit something and then it sort of starts to come back to its original state to, oh, it's tipped past a point where it can, those stabilizers can really be effective. And then uh, different sort of set of feedback loops, like vicious spirals start to kick into place where everyone has to get out, everyone has to sell, everyone has to, you know, um, be the first one to 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 uh, you know um, get out of dodge basically, and I think there's a lot of this like looking around like are we there yet? And I think some some folks it's a it's a spectrum, and I think we're not quite yet to the critical mass. Right? We're not quite there yet, but the fact that you have like senior C suites starting to seriously assess the you know, probability of a, say, a Taiwan event, you know, two three years ago would have been like laughed out, right? That would have not have been a serious sort of senior level business strategy, right? Scenario to put on the table. And now it is. It doesn't mean that they're like preparing for World War III by any means, but it means that now they have to take that scenario seriously, which itself is like a market qualitative shift, right? And that in aggregate means that a lot of companies have to make a lot of different decisions. It also means like countries are making these pretty, you know, substantial decisions. And in really in, in the, you know, in, in Asia, that's really the locus of this. So Ukraine gets the, gets the, um, gets a lot of the attention, it's very important um, 
conflict, but really like the locus of great power confrontation in terms of where there might be a uh, major disruption to the global system is going to come in in Asia. It's really going to come in the South China Sea and Taiwan if, if, if it comes in the near future. Um, so that's where I really be focused. It's obviously a very high risk move for China in trying to shift the global power. There's mm-hmm. clear risks to their own economy. Very, very, yeah. It is a it is a high wire act, and this is where the, in the analytic community there's quite a lot of debate between the um, arguments that China's economic exposures, their weaknesses, their dependencies on the dollar system, their dependencies on uh, deficit countries to absorb their surpluses, their dependencies still on you know energy and food imports make them vulnerable to um, you know counter counterattack if they try to challenge that system. Uh, and you know that the, the arguments there is that they would um, not risk it, basically. So it's a it's a question of how how do we think you know the Politburo, in particular, President Xi is is going to make that risk calculation over what time horizon? Um, and I look at different analysis and different folks who are experts in this area, and it it's a spectrum. Some folks who I trust have a credible view that there's no real likelihood that they would try to you know, make a move, for example, on Taiwan until the end of the decade at least for a combination of both domestic political reasons, like they're just not you know, prepared yet domestically to you know, get their population ready for war. Also, their military capacity is almost there, but not quite. Uh, and they need time to you know, improve their modernization, um, develop some of these advanced capabilities to really increase their confidence and the ability to um, uh, you know, uh, prevail in a conflict against the U.S. and Japan and some of our allies uh, over Taiwan. Um, but there's others who think that okay, there's actually um, there's a window that they that they might assess of like their relative peaking power, and that they are not going to go when they think they're most ready. They're going to go when they think they have the maximum possible relative advantage. And in particular, relative advantage to U.S.'s um, ability to create a counter-China coalition that is it, that is reliable and that is um, effective at both military and economic deterrence against China, as well as U.S. hard power military capabilities. You know, uh, reinforcing our our credible military deterrent uh, in the Pacific and building up Taiwan's endogenous defense capabilities. Like those things are happening starting now, but they're going to have a major lag towards the end of the decade. So you have these different lines, basically, of China's assessment of their growing relative strength and trying to patch up some of these weaknesses that they know they have, as well as assessment of the external environment. And that is also increasing in terms of its ability to counter and deter China. And they have to make this judgment of, you know, it's a risk calculation. Uh, at what point in time are those lines going to become, you know, too close together and where the the delta is going to be the most in their favor? And the the, you know, the risk is that, you know, sometime in the middle of this decade is, you know, where if you look at like the relative, um, you know, kind of economic lines and the development of their military capabilities relative to ours, like that's, that's like the danger zone as, as one book uh, calls it. It doesn't mean it's a, it's a certainty, but that is, I think, why there's so much angst about China and Taiwan in particular is because there's a recognition that this is a very unique scenario. It's a very unique, um, uh, environment. Like the U.S. has never had a pure challenger with China's capabilities. Um, doesn't mean that they're ready to you know, take the mantle of global uh, hegemony. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that view. Um, but it doesn't mean that they aren't able to, you know, effectively challenge uh, U.S.-led uh, security architecture and economic order, especially in the Western Pacific, uh, which is, you know, kind of a big deal. <laughs> and so uh, there's a lot, there's a reason why that should be uh, paid close attention to, um, especially because of the prospects for that spiraling into a larger you know, great power war, which would be um, exceptionally dangerous. So 
even if you think that China is weak and would have no chance against the United States, I think you still have to you know, take that scenario seriously because it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what President Xi thinks. Um, and then history is replete with autocrats and dictators who maybe have an inflated sense of their own um, capabilities. You know, we have a good example of this with President Putin. A lot of people looked at, you know, his buildup on, uh, you know, in the sort of the winter time and said, this is a bluff. This is a coercive pressure campaign. This is him trying to, you know, uh, extract concessions, et cetera. There's no reason, he, there's no way he would try to, you know, conduct this foolish invasion. His, his military is way, um, you know, uh, incapable of, 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 you know, completing that large scale of, of an invasion. He's risking domestic stability. The Siloviki will just take him out back and, and kill him. You know, these, these were the things that were said, and then he did it anyways, right? And it's clearly not been a very successful military operation thus far. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I take that as not necessarily all that, um, all that encouraging that, that, you know, the Taiwan snare is off the table. What's the Siloviki? So the Siloviki is the term for kind of the uh, intelligence uh, kind of elite that run Russia. So kind of out of the ashes of the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, basically the um, you know, uh, elite KGB officers kind of took over the remnants of the state um, and dominated most of the privatizations. And, and Putin was kind of a member of that uh, cadre of, uh, of, uh, of intelligence officers who kind of took over the state. Um, and it's kind of this, you know, quasi-mafia, quasi-state, quasi-intelligence group that yeah, goes, goes by the term Siloviki. Hmm. Uh, so... A hot, a hot war between the U.S. and China is kind of unthinkable, right? I mean, I know in your job you have to think about it, but uh, I mean, I don't think it's unthinkable. I think it's you know it is what the national defense strategy that we recently published basically is focused on. It is focused on uh, integrated deterrence to um, to meet quote unquote the pacing threat, which they define as as China, and that's a market turn from the last national defense strategy. Um, uh, and they're explicitly you know focusing on very, very aggressively um, trying to reorient U.S. military strategy and defense capabilities to deter China, which basically means fight and be able to fight and win a war against China in, in, you know, over Taiwan. There's a lot of attention being placed on that scenario, a lot of like tactical level planning, intelligence collection that's explicitly geared towards that scenario. Um, and so if you ask like, folks in the intelligence community, in the military, in the political apparatus in both countries, they don't, they don't think they're preparing for it in, in, in like an imminent conflict by any means, but there's a recognition on both sides that, you know, they're heading in the wrong direction uh, as in terms of the bilateral relationship. The tensions between these two great powers is, is not great. Um, now there might be, I think, uh, a slight softening in the coming year. Um, you know, there's lots of reasons why that might happen in 2023, but um, it might just be a slight kind of upcycle in this sort of deteriorating trend between the two countries. Um, and this is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. These are the two uh, powers that dominate the global system. They're also intimately linked in terms of their economic uh, dependencies. And so unlike in history where you think about like uh, the, the sort of the century long um, you know, competition slash conflict between um, France and, 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 and Britain uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the 19th century, you know, that, that's like one model that you can imagine. So some folks think that that's sort of the, the scenario we're likely going to be heading into is a sort of this, you know, long grind of sort of relative positioning and trying to, you know, um, uh, rearrange uh, uh, sort of relative power on, on, on the periphery without getting into, you know, major war. Um, or it's a pre-World War I scenario uh, where miscalculation, economic sanctions ratchet up into, you know, what people thought would be a quick war and turned out to be 
anything but. So this is, this is the challenge, right? You have an environment where there's um, increasing tensions economically, politically, um, a sense of like insecurity on both sides. I think the United States is also like, we have the most powerful military, but this thing is that like, we've never had a challenger with the, with that, um, with the, you know, relative, you know, Delta that China has closed. Um, and so that generates insecurity and China also has a sense of insecurity, not because they, um, uh, you know, they don't have confidence in their, the recent military or economic gains, but because I think they see that this window is pretty, pretty close, um, to, you know, like Japan and AUKUS and a lot of these other countries are, you know, not necessarily all on board with China dominating uh, East Asia. And so they realize that it's a matter of time before potentially, um, you know, there's a counter-China coalition that, that, can, that can block them. And they have a geographic uh, constraint, right? They're pretty much hemmed in in the first island chain. They don't have the geographic advantage the United States has with, you know, two peaceful uh, neighbors and, and, and open oceans on both sides where we don't have to worry about, you know, invasion. So China has, you know, 20 different borders. They have... 130,000 troops on both sides of the India-China uh, border. They've fought clashes there. They're right now like have a good relationship with Russia, but they have massive long border with Russia. Historically, Russia's you know been one of their major threats. Um, so yeah, they they have a sense of insecurity too. And usually, that's an environment where bad things happen is when folks are feeling insecure and there aren't um, necessarily uh, like stable patterns of bilateral relations that can help contain a conflict like we had with the Soviet Union. We had hotlines with the Soviets. We had sort of many years after the initial sort of uh, Cold War period to kind of figure out how to manage this Cold War dynamic, where we would sort of not fight each other overtly. We would fight in these proxy wars. Um, and it was okay if, you know, we were shooting down MiG pilots in Korea. There was sort of like, that was okay. We would never actually like, but we, we recognized that would not spill out into like a great power war with, with Russia because everyone knew it would be catastrophic. We don't have... We have not established that those sorts of, um, I think, as stable of a deterrence uh, and deconfliction process with with China, which makes you know accidents, you know, much more dangerous, right? Like um, you know, a, a, a fighter jet colliding with a U.S. spy plane in the South China Sea um, could could precipitate a con uh, you know a major crisis, may not actually lead to a conflict, but these things are um, are on the table. Or uh, you know, things like the um, Speaker of the House visit back in August. You know, the Chinese reaction to that was to essentially bracket Taiwan with ballistic missiles. They they launched uh, the island. They put their forces all around the island, essentially to show how they conduct essentially quarantine slash blockade of those trade routes if they wanted to, um, and force the United States to basically fight our way in if we wanted to relieve Taiwan from that quarantine. So. These are the scenarios that are being discussed over the next several years. That um, if the relationship doesn't take a dramatically positive turn, our, our, our issues. Okay, so this has led us all the way up to your <laughs> article, the future geopolitical order and Bitcoin, and an initial assessment. So, like, I mean, it's such a huge topic to approach. Mm -hmm. What was the background to all? So, really, it was precipitated by um, the post-Ukraine kind of geopolitical shakeup. Because um, I think that uh, had a number of dimensions to it, which brought a lot of these sort of latent um, sort of frictions to the fore. Uh, and so there are a lot of like interesting questions that I think were hypothetical that became more real and that forced, a, you know, serious people to start thinking about like the way the global order is currently structured is now being placed under a huge amount of stress. And when you stress a system that's been built for many years, you know, you start to think about, okay, how stable is the current system and how, 
How could it evolve? How could it break? And you want to be prepared for that. So, you know, maybe it's like this intellectual anxiety that I had about, okay, well, what does this mean? How is this potentially going to play out? That's why I call it like, you know, an initial assessment of the, of the future geopolitical order. Um, you know, one of the things that I tried to do in the, in the paper was just like bracket, first off, like geopolitics is kind of like a, it's like a filler term for like everything. Like, what do you mean by geopolitics? Like, literally it means like all of human society. Um, now there's certain like academic definitions of geopolitics, um, you know, that focus on kind of geography and the intersection between geography and political systems and military capabilities and, um, you know, state relations. Um, but in the present context, it really just means like the international order, which is like the balance of power between states, which are the main actors in the system and the rules that those states subject themselves to, in particular, like the Westphalian concept of state sovereignty and the concept of Europe uh, agreement that you don't, you know, violate the, you know, territorial integrity of another great power. Um, and that really is the main concept that, that um, Russia is accused of violating, essentially, that, you know, their view of state sovereignty is sort of the, the old one, which is only great powers really matter. And other states are essentially, um, you know, uh, subject to, you know, spheres of influence and, and you're either with me or with someone else. And, you know, that was there. And then, and then you have to use force to sort of compel, um, uh, compel folks to act the way you want. And so I saw that as like a critical, like flashpoint that, that revealed not just the geopolitical dynamic, but really the, how, how the monetary uh, system is going to become critical to this. Because unlike in the past where, you know, we had pretty much a, we had like a, you think about these previous periods of major historical confrontation, the most recent one, you know, World War One, World War Two. the global monetary system was not that well integrated. I mean, you could argue that there was a, you know, a sort of first globalization leading up to World War One that broke in World War One, um, And that was a gold standard. There was, you know, there was lots of global trade. There was, you know, lots of integrated um, specialization. And people thought that, in fact, there was debates in, in the British House, House of Commons that you know, economic interdependence would you know make war foolhardy. There's no way that we would go to war with, with Germany. Like we're so connected. Like we are, um, you know, so intimately um, dependent on each other that to you know fight would just be insanity. Um, and that they made the same arguments that you sort of hear now that the degree of global um, economic and trade uh, interconnection would make war you know um, impossible to countenance. And then others were looking at that and basically said, well, you know, the the aspirations of rising states um, eventually decide, you know, to go, and then economics starts to take a backseat. So this is why I think it's important to look at why I focused a lot on the monetary system in the in the in the in the paper because, you know, sometimes you have this sort of technocratic view that it just it's just money, it's just you know the ledger account in your bank, but really money and geopolitics are intimately connected, and in a sense. The um, enduring or the uh, existing monetary system is usually downstream of, of the global, like geopolitical arrangement, right? Like whoever has the the most uh, like hard power usually is the one who sets the rules, and part of those rules is what counts as money, and who has the power to enforce what counts as money, and and cut people out of that system, and delete access to that money system is a expression and demonstration of power. So if you're trying to understand the future monetary arrangement, you kind of have to understand what you think the future geopolitical arrangement is going to be. And so, you know, Bitcoiners are obsessed about thinking about the future monetary arrangement. Um, but I feel like you're missing a huge and probably like an essential component of that analysis if you don't have 
uh, a view of what you think the future geopolitical order is, is going to be. So that's why it's like you have to have that be at the center of your focus and then try to assess you know, the, the relevance of Bitcoin in some of these you know, future scenarios. And did you come into this paper with a hypothesis that you were trying to kind of prove, disprove? So I've divided it really into two main sections. The first section is really just trying to like provide a, a schema to think about the global order, right, in different domains. And it gets really complicated. And, you know, my first, you know, objective was just to try to put some of these more technical and somewhat jargony pieces into one semi-coherent framework. So you can like understand what you mean when you say like the global monetary system, like what does that mean? And when you say there's frictions or, or potential um, vulnerabilities, like where, right? And I tried to locate, you know, okay, in the structure of the treasury market, in the, 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 the structure of, of, of sort of the technical plumbing of the monetary system at like the micro scale, like how does that actually work? And there's a lot of focus on like FinTwit, right? <laughs> on on all, the, all the charts about, well, what is the Bank of Japan's yield curve control gonna mean for the US 10-year treasury note? What are the flows between, uh, you know, different global like sort of money centers and the offshore euro dollar system? All these things get very technocratic and very complicated. Um, and you kind of have to zoom in a bit, but ultimately, that's where you know these um, endogenous sort of instabilities could erupt, right? And we've seen this in history. We've seen you know from the sort of obscure plumbing of the financial of the monetary system, things break, and then all of a sudden the Fed has to do trillions of dollars of QE, and that has a geostrategic implication. And so you know you, you kind of have to have an eye to like the microscopic details, and then try to zoom out and say, well, what would this mean for geopolitical power relations? And so like Japan is a good example for this in the sense that. You know, Japan is a critical part of the offshore euro dollar system, you know, for lots of historical reasons. They've sort of taken over a lot of, you know, kind of euro dollar offshore lending from Europe as Europe became much more highly regulated. And, um, you know, post-Brexit, City of London kind of took a backseat to some of this stuff. And really because of Japan's closeness to China, as China integrated into the global dollar system, Japan became a main conduit of trillions of dollars of dollar lending in, in, into China. Um, Japan is usually, you know, not thought of as like being this major global player, uh, but they are critical to this. But they're also geopolitically critical because they're essentially one of the closest U.S. allies. You know, they're um, at the center of any kind of uh, military deterrent uh, scenario against uh, against China. Um, they're a critical trade partner. Uh, so we have like a very close bilateral relationship with them across lots of different domains. And so seeing the intersection between these monetary dynamics, the geopolitical dynamics, the military dynamics, and then the you know, rising challenge of China, especially in that uh, East Asian um, sort of system of power, like these are like the, the things you need to be focused on. And there's no like one story that you can just easily tell that's like nice, clean. Like these are very complicated systems that all link together. <laughs> and so I don't think I did a very good job of like covering it all, but I try to like touch on all the key elements of it just to like get like the sort of the micro and the meso and the macro scales about like why the plumbing matters, why kind of the geopolitical power arrangements matter and like in the sweep of history, why we see kind of, you know, this, this typical pattern of, of tension between rising powers and incumbent powers between, you know, Eurasian land-based powers and maritime oceanic powers and the different cultural political systems they have. You know, Eurasian autocratic t tends to tends to be the, the, the match and then oceanic kind of maritime commercial rule of law is sort of the historical um, inheritance we have from, 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 from uh, Britain and France. So these are like 
they all come together. If you're trying, if you want to be hubristic enough to try to like look into the future and predict how the whole global arrangement is going to evolve in the next five or 10 years, like you literally have to try to capture everything. Um, and then I try to lay out some like different, like, like a scenario with like different excursions, right? Like how this could evolve in different ways. Uh, and it's weird because, uh, you know, in this, in this, topic on, you know, in social media and other contexts, like people have a lot invested in one particular scenario. Like it's almost like there's tribes associated with like, there is going to be a new gold bricks commodity, you know, Eurasian yeah. power block that's going to you know, supplant the, the, like the dollar tomorrow. And, you know, people get really emotionally invested in this. And sometimes to your, your earlier point, like, you know, there's often this latent moral view, right? That like US bad, Russia good, China China good, U.S. bad, or vice versa, that people have as like their background, say, normative political views, that they sort of, that sort of weight what they think analytically is likely to happen. <laughs> and so I try to like not do that. It's like, you know, what you think you want to happen is not necessarily the way it could happen. Um, and, and, and also like one of the like critical uh, like risks uh, in all of this is that these changes to the global monetary system and the global balance of power typically don't happen in a smooth linear line that you can just say, here's the steps, here's A to B to C to D, and we are now 30% of the way there. And you can easily see that because the value of the dollar or the value or the percent of the of global trade being used by the dollar is, is, is X, Y, or Z. Like these, like people often default to these crude metrics as indicators of the of this change that may or may not be happening in this immensely complex global system. I think that's just like a category error. Like you're not going to get many meaningful, you know, much meaningful information from those simple measures. You have to kind of understand how the global system is currently arranged and look for, you know, ways it could just break in in ways that maybe could shift the the, the regime to a very different system. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. 
Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. So when considering this and then looking at what happened with the sanctions against Russia and essentially the freezing of their, it was their U.S. treasuries were essentially frozen, right? So actually, Russia uh, sold off all the U.S. Treasury securities in 2018. But what they held were dollar deposits in the Bundesbank, essentially associated with um, the ECB and the Bank of Japan. Um, so yeah, we froze in a coordinated G7 action on February 25th, I believe. It was that Sunday, just after the invasion, maybe 26th. Um, but $300 billion of those dollar deposits, uh, which was sort of by two orders of magnitude, the largest sort of sanction on, on that, uh, on, on those types of dollar deposits that we've ever done. The, the closest equivalent was actually the um, Afghan National Bank was about 7 billion or so that we seized when the Taliban took over. So 7 billion to 300 billion. Yeah. I thought it was like 60 billion. I don't know why I thought that. Uh, yeah, it was 300 billion. It was Jesus. a lot. Yeah. Uh, and okay. <laughs> The sell-off of the U.S. Treasuries, do we know why that was? Do you think that's in preparation? Uh, yes. I mean, they were making no um, no secret of the fact that they were trying to create Fortress Russia, where they were trying to insulate themselves from Western economic coercion. Really, ever, That really started after um, their first uh, uh, military engagement uh, into Ukraine in the Donbass yeah. uh, and Crimea in 2014, where we sanctioned them. Um, nothing is significant as the the most recent sanctions but you know there that was a pivot in their relationship to 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 the US and a strategic shift that they were posturing for um you know potential additional sanctions and so they sold them off in 2018 um and they did other things to try to insulate themselves from western economic coercion bought gold yeah they were buying uh, a lot of gold um uh now they didn't quite insulate themselves entirely obviously these you know they they thought that I think they were a little bit surprised by the um, the the willing the quick the degree to which, for example, the ECB went along with those those sanctions, um, and actually Japan did too. About two days later, I think the interesting thing that you mentioned in the um, article as well is that people were really willing to self uh, sanction them. Mm. Yeah, and actually, this is something that the Chinese have. Um, taking close notes uh, on <laughs> as they start to think about, you know, what sorts of an, um, backlash would they expect in a Taiwan uh, scenario is, you know, when that invasion first occurred, the, you know, there's a whole series of you know, official actions that, that happened 
the most high profile, which was the sanctioning, uh, the, the blocking sanctions against the, the Russian central bank, the ability to access those dollar deposits. Um, that was certainly among the more like strategically significant. But there was also a wave of just spontaneous uh, corporate, you know, uh, exit from Russia. You know, fire selling of their Russian assets to local partners, uh, just getting out of the country, and you know, doing voluntary um, boycotts of selling goods to to Russian um, uh, customers. And so that that sort of wave became almost like a you know like a, a like a moral panic in a sense. Like you, you were you were a bad company if you were still doing business in Russia, right? And so there wasn't like an official U.S. sanction. It wasn't like the Treasury Department was telling you don't sell those widgets to, to Russia. It was just, we can't be seen to be selling these things to, to Russia. So like, we're not. I think China looked at that and started to calculate and has you know, continued to calculate whether that something similar would happen um, in a Taiwan scenario with, with Western multinationals, whether like, aside from the official sanction that say the US government would want to impose, there might be waves of, you know, social media essentially um, uh, boycotts that have to be, uh, that had, to be, that had to be reckoned with. Um, Put Apple in a tricky position. Oh yeah, I mean, a lot of multinationals, especially folks that have extensive first and second order dependencies on, Russia, on, on uh, Chinese production, are like aggressively trying to posture for backups, right? Apple's trying to move production out of China. It's very tall order for them because they've, you know, they were, they were like one of the biggest proponents of Chinese integration to the global manufacturing system for, um, for, their, for, for their components. Um, so they're trying to, you know, spread some of it to Vietnam and India, but the scale of what they've built in in uh, in China and the integrated kind of supply chains and and third party providers is is just hard to replicate. It's going to be many years um, and very expensive in the process. Um, but yeah, that that is a key different dynamic. And so, particularly like when we sanctioned Russia, there's things that we didn't sanction. Importantly, so we did not sanction their energy. We did not sanction the majority of their commodities. We didn't sanction. We'd had some like exemptions for like pharmaceuticals, kind of um, uh, you know, like COVID stuff. Like we didn't want to be seen like causing like a humanitarian crisis. Um, but it was like pretty obvious that like we we actually created like a helpful schema for the banks to say you can keep buying and facilitating the financing of Russian oil trade, like, please don't self-sanction out of that, right? They were very explicit. They did not want to sanction Russian oil because they were especially conscious of potential impact on global energy markets and inflation. Um, and so they, they were very clear to banks around the world and U.S. banks in particular that, like, we want you to keep facilitating these payments. Um, and so it's then been like a very complicated, very messy, you know, almost year now of like gradually trying to tighten the screws in different ways as the G7 tries to do this in ways to minimize the blowback, right? And this is tough because Russia's the third largest, I think, oil producer, um, you know, the largest overall like commodity producer in the world. It's very hard to just like cut them out of the global system. Um, and that's how I see, you know, the global arrangement right now, you know, from a simple schematic, right? There's like three major power centers you can think of, like in any economy you have, money, you have like raw commodities, like inputs, and you have production manufacturing, right? That's a very, very simple schema. Like you can think of it like a, a triangle. And, you know, the G7 kind of runs, has the dominant uh, uh, sort of uh, point of that triangle when it comes to money, right? G7, money, credit, and really also like the, the matrix of money and military and legal institutions. Like we dominate that. And that's 
by far the most powerful single like element of the global system. Um, and then there's, but that's just like money and military and law, right? It's like institutions, not like stuff and it's not production. So the stuff is mainly coming from OPEC plus. So OPEC plus Russia, plus is the Russia um, piece. And that's, you know, energy and raw commodities. Like that's how you have a, an economy at all, right? You need to extract resources and then turn them into final goods. And that final goods production comes from mainly China. Uh, and so China is the third leg. So you have essentially the, the G7, OPEC plus, essentially Saudi Arabia, Russia, and China. And when those sort of three elements of the global system were kind of in frenemy mode, when they agreed to kind of cooperate as part of globalization and specialize in those different areas, and we didn't weaponize the dollar system, they didn't weaponize supply chains, and they didn't weaponize you know, raw commodities, you had a nice global order. What we've seen you know, really in the post-Ukraine um, environment is like different parts of that triangle starting to break down. Uh, you can imagine like the, the sanctions on Russia's central bank reserves is like a, a big like weed whacker to the, the link between the G7 sort of military money system, legal system, and Russian commodities. And you can see what is now creeping up on the other leg is sanctions on uh, or restrictions on Chinese technology, right? So like the, the various export controls we've started to place on, uh, on, on uh, Chinese semiconductor uh, industry, which have really ratcheted up essentially the, the scale of our economic um, containment campaign against, against Chinese. Is that just economic or is that also like uh, fear over what's in these technologies? Well, or is that a smokescreen? Well, so it's complicated. It's both to a certain extent. So, but the, 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 the big kind of strategic action that was taken recently to kind of up the ante was really taking um, what had been really narrowly, uh, narrowly drawn restrictions on Huawei in particular, and really applied them like across the board to, to, to a lot of, of Chinese technology firms and semiconductors. So really try to like stop their technological progress, to really hold them back from the technological frontier, in particular with advanced semiconductor um, uh, chips so that they you know, can't design the next generation of AI capabilities that, that, that the West is going to be taking a lead on. Was this the restrictions that are human resources, essentially? It was it was across the board. I mean, it okay. was these are very complicated um, export controls. They're they're um, implemented by the um, Bureau of Industrial Standards (BIS) of the Commerce Department, uh, and their job is basically to um, it's export controls. It's basically saying that any product that uses uh, American technology, in particular these like chip designs, um, it's very technocratic how it's implemented. Basically, you can't sell it to to, to these Chinese firms, um, and if you sell it to these Chinese firms, will like put crippling penalties on you. Um, now, this is like a unilateral sanction. It has about a 12-month period to try to get some of our critical allies in this industry, in particular the Dutch, the Japanese, the South Koreans on board. That's going to be a tall order. But that's going to be a real test of how much geoeconomic coercive and diplomatic influence the United States can exert in building a true counter-China coalition. This is what sort of is talked about on PowerPoints and what and sort of think think tank pieces in DC. But the rubber that meets the road is going to be, can we get the South Koreans to agree to do this? Even though Samsung is like a national champion and they have 25% of their sales in China and major manufacturing capabilities that they would have to, you know, potentially take a hit at. So this is going to be a real test of can we, can we, um, incentivize, can we coerce, uh, you know, our, our East Asian allies to sort of pick our side in this, in this attempt to hold back Chinese um, technological advancement. 
What is the potential response from China on this? Or what responses have there been? And what is the hope with this? Like, what reaction mm. do they really want from China? Some kind of come to the table and negotiate and agree certain things? These things are very complicated. Uh, the, I, there hasn't been yet a very overt reaction from China. Um, and people speculate on why. I think my best assessment is that one, they don't think they've yet been re really effective in, in the implementation yet. There was some initial panic of like, when they were first released, there was a lot of like uncertainty over how they could be implemented. And especially on um, like Americans working for these companies, they had to basically quit their jobs and there was some initial disruption. Um, but China, I think also has some degree of confidence from the Huawei experience where, you know, Huawei was like directly targeted by like the full force of, of US sanctions. And it hurt them. It really cut them out of kind of some of the smartphone market. Um, and, you know, their, their, you know, their equity took a hit and they were, you know, struggling for a bit. But they've pivoted. They've, you know, adapted in the, really the two years that it took. And they've shifted to servers and cloud and peripheral devices and you know, found, found ways to kind of work around it. And uh, in 2020, they, aside from, um, I think it was Google and Apple, uh, were the only two other companies in the world that spent more on R&D than the than Huawei. And so Huawei is like major in telecommunications, 5G uh, selling that around the world. So we're trying to stop that, right? We're doing everything we can to kind of gum up the works of Chinese um, domestic technological advance, but also their ability to um, you know, spread their, their, their surveillance as a service capabilities to kind of their um, geoeconomic influence, um, a sphere of influence through like the Belt Road Initiative, uh, where they kind of have this package of, you know, we'll help finance you uh, with dollars that we, get, that we have from our export surplus and we'll, you know, do these vanity projects. We'll, you know, maybe some, some, uh, some gold bars will find your way, you know, into, into, your, uh, into your suitcase. Um, and we'll also help build up your infrastructure. We'll bring 5G towers from Huawei. We'll also build in um, a whole surveillance system for you. With uh, with Hikavision cameras and ZTE, we have all these you know really advanced facial recognition algorithms, and basically a lot of these aspiring autocrats or weak states can see this as just like a subscription model. Like I'm gonna subscribe to the Chinese techno government's uh, sort of techno governance um, uh, uh, sort of uh, stack. And the new SaaS, yeah, surveillance as a service. Yeah, and and that is a major strategic threat from the United States' perspective. And so we're trying to do everything we can to 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 to. to, to stop that or at least to, to go up the works. So all these things are instruments of what you could imagine is just this um, increasing attempt by the United States and really our, 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 our geoeconomic allies to try to um, you know, forestall China's technological progress as, as a rising military and economic competitor. And that's, that's where we are now. Just going back to Russia, um, amongst the analysts, the people you follow, mm -hmm. you talk to, has this been largely seen as a strategic error or has Russia generally been largely unaffected? Well, it depends what you mean by Russia, right? So there has certainly been major pain felt by the Russian people. Um, their economy is, you know, facing you know, contraction and they can't get the luxury goods. They, you know, finding a car with airbags and satellite radio is very difficult. Um, but like in any economy, right, you, you black markets flourish and, you know, Russian elites, you know, vacation in Turkey and basically tell, you know, their interlocutors that we can basically get anything we want for a 20% more surcharge, you know, going, going through Kazakhstan, et cetera, to get the, the, the goods they want. Um, Italian handbags are apparently like the most, um, uh, you know, in demand, high, high margin thing for those criminal gangs to smuggle. 
So, you know, like anything, like the poor and the marginal tend to suffer and then the elite find a way to get what they want um, regardless. Uh, but we have the same in the UK right now as a result of the war. We have the poor suffering who cannot heat mm-hmm. their homes and who suffering from high inflation, can't mm-hmm. afford to feed their children. Uh, yeah, anyone who's uh, certainly upper class is not feeling those effects. Yeah, and that's the sad story with um, really any major conflict is usually the rich and well-connected can find a way to kind of avoid the the most pain and then it falls on everyone else in society. And the so, decision makers. Yeah, and the thing about Russia is, you know, this is no... Um, this is not an unusual scenario, right? You can go back through Russian history. This has happened quite a bit. So Russia as a state, you know, people have different claims about, will the state collapse? Is Putin personally, you know, vulnerable from assassination? There's been lots of speculation about his personal health. Um, you know, that's a, you know, there's, there's ripe fodder for speculation about that. I, I think in general, though, you know, it was kind of a, it was a miscalculation. It was not a well-informed strategic decision. Like he clearly had poor intelligence. He clearly expected the FSB's um, sort of sleeper cells that they had claimed that they had recruited in all of these, um, you know, local townships across, across especially Eastern Ukraine would sort of rise up and spontaneously greet them as liberators, right? Uh, and they, you know, that they could, you know, take large swaths of, of, uh, of the country that the, the GRU Spetsnaz units could, you know, do this crazy insertion to Kiev and take out the leadership. And it would be like this blitzkrieg, desert storm demonstration of Russia's superior military and intelligence capabilities. And clearly that was wrong. Clearly uh, they did not have those capabilities. Um, and it was a major embarrassment um, for his intelligence and military um, institutions. And so Russia uh, and China has also recalibrated their views. I think they thought, you know, that they could do this. And so they had to kind of second, uh, take a second assessment of, of the, um, you know, capabilities of this now junior partner in the relationship. So, but like longer term, this is just going to be a, a grind. I mean, people have different assessments of the military situation on the ground. I'm not a military expert, but um, I think my baseline assumption is that, that there'll be, you know, counteroffensives to take certain territory back and forth. There'll be, um, you know, still very destructive attacks on both sides. That will be just a terrible grinding conflict for a while uh, before there's, you know, any attempt at some sort of ceasefire. Um, the problem is like the Ukrainians have maximal war aims, which is to get all of their territory back. Uh, United States has, you know, um, our, our war aims are just to basically defang Russia as a military power, but we don't necessarily need to take all of Ukraine's territory back in order to do that. And the Europeans have even less of an ambitious war aim, which is just stop the pain from energy disruptions and overall and, and like migrant uh, flows from, for, for, from, uh, from Ukrainian refugees. So each of those actors is going to try to compel, you know, the parties to, to take a different, um, you know, uh, uh, position in, in any settlement negotiation. But it's going to be a grind and I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but... Yeah, that's 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 a mess. The U.S. government has been been very supportive to the Ukrainians. Um, I think uh, the last number was a four, another forty billion being mm-hmm. sent. I'm not sure if that's money or weapons. What it's kind of irrelevant to my point I'm making is that that there's been a lot of criticism of this, uh, mainly in uh, conservative right wing circles, and that's that's just an observation. Um, uh, do you think if uh, if it was currently a Republican government, they would have been supporting Ukraine the same. Hmm. Um, does these kind of decisions, do they tend to be the same whoever is controlling government, whether it's Republican or Democrat? Um, 
yeah, God, I've, I've got more questions, but we'll mm -hmm. go with that first. Yeah, so again, putting just like my pure analyst, like realist hat on, if you look at it for like a pure ROI, right, we've spent probably 5% of our military budget to destroy about 50% of Russia's military capacity. That's a good return. So if, if that is your pure measure of quote unquote success, whether that's like, that's not a moral uh, judgment, just like, did you get an effective bang for your buck given that the conflict already occurred? That's like, that's one data point you'd have to um, assess, right? I think a lot of that judgment though goes back to like a different political um, view of just the, the, the sort of antecedents for the conflict itself. And these are sort of interminable debates between was it NATO enlargement or was it sort of Putin's, um, uh, you know, revanchist uh, uh, ambitions that are the true blame. And, you know, I, I'm not an expert in the, in the deep history of that, of that area. So usually need to have like a fact-based argument to say, what was the causal, you know, root of any particular action? And what was the sequence of actions that took place that you can assign moral blame to the root cause? And then everyone else was making a reaction to that, you know, initial sort of morally vulnerable claim, right? And I think, I don't know, I don't have a, a uh, I don't have the deep like historical knowledge to say, okay, this is like going back to, the breakup of the Soviet Union, here's the tit for tat, and this is where someone made the, the morally blameworthy decision. But I think the bottom line now is like, you know, Ukraine was invaded. Like that's like the basic near-term fact, right? And, and you, at, when you are in that state of affairs, you have like, you have very simple options, right? Do you support or do you not support? And what is the, the threshold by which you decide to push for, you know, coercive rapprochement? Where do you think you can um, squeak out a gain. And I think just from like real politics, right? As long as you're winning, right? There's no incentive for you to like go to the negotiating table, right? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think that, that's where a lot of the, the political debates fall in terms of these are great powers going at it, right? And your, you know, your moral judgments, you can have that debate, but they're just going to fight until they feel like their interests are no longer being served. And great powers will continue to push until they think that they've reached sort of the marginal benefit. I think that's what the United States is just going to do, right? So just as a realist, I think we're just going to, you know, keep supporting Ukraine up until the point where we don't want to risk like an asymmetric tail risk scenario, like Russian tactical nuclear weapons or chemical biological weapons, or um, force him to retaliate against Western critical infrastructure uh, or do something like immensely more disruptive outside the Ukrainian theater. Like, those are things that would not be advantageous to us. So we don't want to push so far that it triggers those sorts of things. But as long as we can sort of grind out and just basically defang the Russian military with, you know, from the larger scheme of things, like a fraction of our military expenditure, like I, I could see them easily winning that argument inside Congress. Like, yes, this is a good spend. This is a good bang for the buck. And, and it is 50% of the Russian military has been destroyed. That's, that's basically the assessment in terms of their overall armaments that they've wasted. They've lost probably 100,000 troops. Um, 100,000 you know, troops? Probably, yeah. Wow. Close to that. Do we know how many people Ukraine have lost? Very closely held. I mean, people speculate, but I think I've heard folks estimate 30 to 40,000, um, roughly. These are all back of the envelope. No one really knows. So there must be a limitation to how far Russia can push this if they've lost 100,000 troops. Well, again, you're talking to someone who, who listens to other experts, so I'm not the military expert. Um, you know, they've drawn up 300,000 reserves, uh, about maybe 80 to 100,000 of those have actually been put into theater in various parts. They've tried to use Belarus as a staging ground for, for training these, um, these, uh, these new reserves. They've taken some prison conscripts to sort of do some backfill on the logistics. They've 
been able to reinforce their lines in the east. Uh, they're going to be hard for a, a Ukrainian counteroffensive to really dislodge. And they're fighting over kind of, you know, what are more like marginal territorial gains at this point, um, as opposed to like in the early innings of the conflict, there was like wild swings back and forth. Um, and, and now it's sort of settling into... Not people make, a, I think, a poor analogy to like attritional warfare, like World War One. It's not quite like that because it's not as as ingrained. It's still a very fluid situation, and also the capabilities are still changing. Right, every time a new capability gets introduced, it sort of changes some of the strategic positioning. For example, when we gave the Ukrainians these um, these HIMARS um, systems, it allowed them to target much deeper behind Russian lines and killed a lot of their senior generals and interrupted their supply and and sort of formations. And then the Russians adapted to that, and those started becoming less effective. Then the Ukrainians started to bring, and then the Russians started to bring in um, Iranian drones, the Shahids, and started to you know do these saturation strikes on urban centers and hitting critical infrastructure and wiping out Ukrainian power in the depths of winter. So this is like the it's not a very settled situation. Um, but you but Russia has like a million man army that they're trying to build, and they have a lot of surplus you know, prisoners they can throw into the meat grinder and they're getting ammunition from North Korea. They got a million artillery rounds they just bought. So I think people that think the, the, the Russian army is going to collapse, uh, not correct, but they probably don't have the capability to mount like a major new offensive to like seriously threaten Kiev, even though I think the Ukrainian defense minister um, gave an interview where he said like Russia was building like a secret army to try to, you know, reinforce and maybe do like a new counteroffensive that that maybe just to try to you know get 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 more resources, but um, but yeah, there is a you know there's no, nothing I see right now that's going to strategically tip the balance, um, and they're you know this is just going to be kind of like a, a grind. Um, what has this conflict taught us about money in terms of money as a, like an expression of power? Yeah, so I think that was one of the framing devices I used in the paper, which is um, you know. Money is in our, in our current context, and really for all, most of most of human history, is uh, a, an expression of sovereigns' sphere of influence, right? Where you decide who is going to um, be uh, uh, allowed to access your institutions, mainly your banks, under what terms, what rules of law, and you can you know limit access to those institutions. You can you can provide. Um, an open capital account, you can have a closed capital account. So money is always an expression of kind of the sovereign's sort of influence. And the United States has sort of um, set a global environment post-war where we could create essentially a monetary commons. And the premise of a monetary commons is that it, it has really no gates, right? Like an open park. Anyone can walk in, anyone can go out. The dollar was a monetary commons. Anyone could use it. That was why it became the global reserve currency is because it was so easy to use and uh, it, cro- it sort of... Uh, also correlate with U.S. Uh, U.S. power, like we were the global security guarantee um, to global trade post World War II, and so people, you know, just endogenously started trading in dollars and denominating their their offshore loans in dollars. That was the genesis of the of the euro dollar system. And what we've seen really in the past twenty years, and really it precipit- it really hit a new phase after the global financial crisis, was the global monetary commons basically broke. And uh, and then we've increasingly sort of gated it uh, with the uh, sanctions on Iran, and and then in the last year or two, um, we're starting to see like more and more conditions, conditional access policies be placed on 
this, what was normally like an open global monetary comments. And I think that is changing kind of the risk premium that all global actors, you know, in particular, the more strategically important, like sovereign wealth funds, FX reserve managers, have to now place a new like political and geopolitical risk premium on their, um, what was formerly thought to be like a risk-free access to global monetary comments. But that's almost similar to what the work you've been doing with mm-hmm. advising companies, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of you know, what might happen with China, what uh, access they might have, or you know, they might have to de-risk their semiconductor mm-hmm. supply chains. This is exactly the same scenario. Yeah, you think about you know, money as a technology. These are all institutional um, uh, arrangements that go through like real infrastructure, right? So like SWIFT is a technical network, right? Uh, Fedwire is a technical network. The competing systems that China's trying to build, uh, like the cross-border interbank settlement system, SIPS, and their digital currency system, DCEP, is their sort of proto-competitor to these global infrastructures. Um, And so you're seeing this um, bifurcation and the sort of institutional um, competition play out across all these different domains. And the monetary domain is probably one of the more geostrategically important domain where this is going to be um, contested. And so, yeah, everyone is, uh, and, and usually, you know, China and the United States have the most power to sort of try to, um, you know, take actions, but there's a lot of other actors in the system that have to respond or can push back in different ways. And so one of the interesting things I think we're going to see in the coming years is you might, you know, call it multipolar, you know, arrangement, but uh, these powers that can sort of play both sides and that can leverage their either access to critical you know, uh, resources like the GCC or OPEC, Saudi Arabia in particular, or folks that have like a you know, critical geographic uh, advantage like Turkey, um, or folks that have like major commodity, uh, you know, uh, other resources like Brazil. Like these are countries that are going to have, you know, kind of a, a new ability to, to play both sides. And that means it's like, you know, when you have like a, one monopoly competitor like, block, like Blockbuster, right? Like everyone has to go there to get, to get, um, to get uh, to get their movies, Netflix comes out with like a better technology and destroys Blockbuster. I don't think that's like the like people make like that like that type of analogy between like the digital, like digital yuan and the dollar. I don't think that's the right analogy. But I think you're seeing essentially more like Apple Android, right? Where it's like okay, here are two competing sort of entire technical governance political stacks, and the, we have a legacy stack. It's very strong. It's a dominant stack. It's like everyone likes Apple. Everyone's going to be, but you're kind of stuck in Apple. But if Apple starts to like, you know, make you pay up to get your pictures, right? Or starts to impose excessive fees on every every transaction you make, and then Android says, "Oh, actually, like, you know, you know, maybe you don't like us, maybe you hate Google, but we're gonna like make our system just like cheaper for you to use, especially for you, because maybe you know you're someone that Apple doesn't like." So, like for example, the like the Saudi Arabians, this is like a critical um, kind of like litmus test. Is you know they were you know. They were the key to the re-architecture of the global sort of geoeconomic arrangement um, post uh, 1971, right? When Secretary Simon went to um, uh, went to Jeddah and basically created the petrodollar system, right? Which really involved recycling uh, oil dollar surpluses that they agreed to, you know, accumulate by only selling their oil for dollars, and then they would recycle those surpluses into Western debt. U.S. Treasury securities, and that put this critical link between, uh, you know, the essential commodity of the economy, oil, and the dollar, sort of to replace the oil, uh, the uh, the dollar uh, gold peg that that broke in 1971, sort of flipped it to this dollar oil um, uh, arrangement. 
And so Saudi Arabia was like a critical geostrategic partner for us from, from many decades. And so them, essentially, they're not flipping to the Chinese, but they are, you know, recalibrating their arrangement uh, to really play the sort of middle power um, role where, you know, they don't, they want to be able to do what their surplus is what they want. And that may involve selling some of their oil for yuan. And it may be involving setting up these arrangements for um, direct bilateral, uh, like digital currency settlement and helping bring the rest of the GCC along, along the way with that, with, with China. It also helps, you know, it doesn't, doesn't help, it doesn't um, hurt that uh, their ballistic missiles come from China. <laughs> um, and uh, they've got Huawei uh, as their main uh, sort of telecommunication service provider. And throughout the Middle East, China has taken this very kind of attack uh, of, okay, we're not going to move in with base with, with like the PLA Navy first, right? Like what, like, like what the West did in the, in, the, in the early part of the 20th century, where first it was the British, then it was the Americans who took over as the major security force. They're mainly to like get the oil, control the oil, and denominate the oil first in pounds and then in dollars. And that was like the critical kind of geostrategic relevance of, of, that, of that region. And it was, you know, military first, it wasn't a whole lot of technology, right? It was just like, get the oil out of the ground and ship it out. Now China's coming in and saying, okay, well, you know, we're gonna start with economics, we're gonna start with trade, we're gonna start with um, digital transformation of, the, of, of these, of these uh, countries, and we're gonna use that to sort of pull them into our geoeconomic orbit gradually. And that is, that is the point of tension now. Um, and these countries are also not all that liberal, right? Like MBS is not exactly all that um, on good terms with the White House. And so it doesn't take a whole lot to help him, to make him seem like he's in a better, uh, he's on a better team if he aligns marginally with the Putins, the Erdogans and the Xi's of the world relative to, you know, the G7. Um, and that is, that's a challenge for the United States. This is, this is a different environment. And I don't think, you know, we're, we're trying to keep a lid on all these things. We're trying to, you know, reinforce our, our hegemonic power. Um, but, you know, every, every intervention co takes costs and those costs are, str are straining our fiscal budget, our, our capacity. And we have a lot of embedded obligations that are going to stretch our, um, stretch our, uh, our capabilities in the, in the coming decades. Like we've basically committed to try to uh, build up a military to reinforce our deterrent cap uh, capabilities against China. It's going to be very expensive. We've committed to helping friendshore and reshore a lot of these supply chains away from China. That's going to be expensive. Uh, we're trying to prosecute this like strategic competition with China. So industrial subsidies, industrial policies, uh, like the CHIPS Act and other things like that that are going to be coming on the line. That's going to be very expensive. We're going to try to um, you know, rebuild our domestic energy infrastructure uh, to meet our net zero climate objectives. That's going to be very expensive. Uh, rewiring our grid and you know, doing all this um, shift towards electrification. And we have the boomers retiring that are you know, gonna be making large claims on social security and Medicare. Uh, these are all very like, expensive uh, structural forces that require a lot more debt issuance from the US treasury. Um, at the same time that there's- Less people buying. Less people that may have a, a, a reason to, to hold US treasury securities. And so that is, that is the, those are trend lines that aren't going in a, like the right direction for the, for the United States in particular, putting a lot of strain on the US Treasury security market. Would you say then sanctioning uh, the Russia's U US debt, um, sorry, uh, US bank holders, would you say that was a miscalculation? Um, I think history will see that as a major pivot in, and maybe it was inevitable, Right, like hist history is contingent, um, so it can play out in a lot of ways. But I think it was not. Uh, I don't think they thought through all the second and third order consequences. I think that um, 
sanction was done because we wanted to do something extremely significant, but below like the threshold of like causes belli with Russia. Like we wanted to punish them as severely as we could, but we knew we weren't going to do a no fly zone. We weren't going to like put, you know, SEAL teams behind enemy lines and blow stuff up. Like we weren't going to do anything like, like kinetic against Russia. So Biden was like, give me like the most substantial non-kinetic you know, punishment that we can um, lay on Russia. And I think the guys in the National Security Council, you know, talked to some folks at the Fed or folks at the US Treasury Department were like, what's like the biggest hammer we can swing that isn't gonna like, you know, uh, cause a war? And they're like, well, we could sanction all their dollars. And okay, we'll do that. And I think it was decided over a weekend, basically. I don't think anyone modeled out, you know, what folks in say, you know, the PIF for the SAMA, which is the sovereign wealth funds of Saudi Arabia, would think about that, or think about what um, you know the Indians would think about that. Think about what some of these other kind of powers in the world that are critical to the you know stability of the dollar system um, that are potentially going to be gaining more relative power, and now they see that as a signal that if okay, maybe the Ukrainian situation is you know, morally justified uh, to bring the sanction on them. But what's to stop a future U.S. political administration to now wield this as a tool of geoeconomic coercion against me for something that I think is in my legitimate national interest, and now I have this vulnerability that I didn't really think was all that severe, and now I have to, you know, increase the risk premium I attach to it. I think that was not well modeled out. I think that is, a, that is that's something that's hard to model, but it's also, you know, that's the... Um, those are the things you you typically when you think about strategic mistakes. Those are the things that that you look back on. And you think, oh well, this precipitated a whole set of decisions and, and hedging behavior that maybe individually doesn't change everything, but in aggregate can cause um, a strategic effect. When that money's sanctioned, what actually happens to it? Is it frozen or is it confiscated? It's so again, like in the fiat system, these are just ledger entries on a balance sheet and they just have accounts. Yeah. And this is the Russian central bank's account. And it says you have 300 billion, well, you know, say $300 billion of dollars. There's a little dollar sign next to the number. And they put a blocking sanction, like it's a legal maneuver. When I said like, this is like the matrix of money, military, legal, like this is like how US uh, hegemonic power is really enforced. It's you can no longer withdraw from that account. No other, no other institutions in the dollar system will accept that. The Bundesbank, as an institution, is prevented by law and under the threat of sanction to let you do anything with that money. So it's there in the sense that it's like credit in that system that could be reopened, like I didn't like delete it. Um, and so if, you know, it could be used as a, like for example, the Iranian sanctions, like we did something similar with them. We blocked them out of SWIFT and then we, sanctioned a bunch of their dollar deposits and, you know, we essentially held them as like a point of leverage, right? If you do what we want in these, you know, nuclear negotiations, maybe we'll unlock some of those frozen funds. Hmm. So they could get it back potentially, right? Probably not anytime soon, but you can imagine some future Russian, you know, liberal state that says, yeah, we've reformed, we'll apologize. You know, maybe half of it goes to Ukraine as like reparations and then they get some of it back. This show is brought to you by Big Casino. Established in 2013, Big Casino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. 
with over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. Next up, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team of services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot dot com. See, if there is a risk of uh, the US losing its position as a global reserve currency, um, and when you talk about you know, less interest in uh, U.S. debt, mm-hmm. um, but we don't want uh, a shift in the power because people take on, say, the digital yuan. Mm-hmm. It's almost like if somebody invented a decentralized alternative currency, mm-hmm. that might be useful right now. Yeah. So when I think about, um, yeah, the, the, the in this environment, right, where you have general degradation of interstate trust, right? There's like trust is kind of an abstract concept, but like in a geopolitical context, it really is critical, right? It means that your, your allies, but also, you know, folks that are maybe in the second or t- third tier of kind of the global hierarchy, that they 
they think that the system they're bought into is going to be safe for them, right? So they trust that the provider of this, you know, hegemonic arrangement isn't going to weaponize that monetary commons against them. And when that happens, then they have to sort of hedge their bets and they're going to look for alternatives. It doesn't mean there's going to be this overnight, you know, flee from the dollar. There's a lot of structural reasons why the dollar is still very strong as a unit of account. For me, the U.S. Treasury security is more vulnerable as the global reserve asset as opposed to the dollar's role as the global reserve currency. The global reserve asset is the you know, function of the U.S. Treasury security as collateral in the global you know, dollar funding system. That It's like what you have to pledge and hold if you want to um, you know, engage in dollar funding transactions. And a lot of you know, sovereign wealth funds and foreign exchange <laughs> reserve managers hold treasury securities as like the most safe and liquid asset. And there's two key parts of that you know, value proposition, safety and liquidity. And safety, you know, refers mostly to like, it's not going to like dramatically lose its value over time. It's like, it's relatively stable. Well, it's lost like 25%, right? In the last year, right? So it's, that's like the quote unquote risk parity idea uh, where bonds are kind of like your, um, the ballast in your portfolio is just kind of destroyed. So that like pure, like financial dimension of safety, but also just like safety from, you know, geopolitical risk, right? If you are, if you are a nation that may, feel vulnerable to a future political administration, um, you know, using your reserve holdings as a point of coercion, you, you may want to draw down on the, the extent to which you're exposed to that. Um, and liquidity is also taking a hit, right? The, there's been major issues with the liquidity in the treasury market recently. Um, even Treasury Secretary Yellen came out in like September uh, and like noted this. And people speculate about why there was such a dramatic turn in the dollar strength around that time. It coincided with um, a whole bunch of international meetings where a lot of our allies were, you know, saying we're, we're in trouble. There was the blow up in the gilts market in Britain. Uh, Bank of Japan is still facing a lot of issues with their sovereign debt markets. So a lot of sovereign debt is, is taking, taking on the chin. And US Treasury security is, you know, like as we see, right, like the gilts are gonna take it first. The JGBs are going to take it second. Like, it's not going to be the US Treasury security that's going to be the, uh, like the canary in the coal mine. It's going to be these other kind of G7 fiat um, uh, sovereign, sovereign debt securities that are going to be showing kind of this, this type of stress. But it's sort of showing that the system is becoming more unstable. Um, and yeah, so if you're a sovereign that's looking to hedge out of that sort of inside money system, where are you going to go? Where there's sort of only so many alternatives, right? <laughs> in like the traditional landscape of do you just buy more land? You just buy up, and that's what a lot of countries are doing. They're buying up a lot of farmland. They're buying up, um, you know, desirable properties, uh, investing in, you know, Western real estate uh, markets. What, what, sorry, sorry, yeah. the governments are? Yeah, like this, for example, the Saudis, right? The, the, uh, the PIF, which essentially is the piggy bank for, um, <clears throat> for MBS. That's who owns Newcastle, right? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They're, they're doing a lot of investment in sports as well. Yeah, I mean, they're looking, they've got so much money. I mean, the, the Saudis and the, um, the Chinese and maybe if you add in one other country, it's like a trillion dollars of annual surpluses. Um, well, it's, I, I'm sure I heard that the, their, oils, that their, their revenue from oils generate 240 billion profit a quarter. Saudis alone. Do you want I, to double check? That? I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I know Saudi Aramco is among the most, you know, has the yeah. among the highest revenue, and, and it's like a trillion trillion in annual yeah. revenue. Yeah, um, maybe it's revenue, not like I thought it was profits. I think they, I mean they print money. I don't know yeah. off the top of my head, but they print money. I yeah. mean they're making a ton of money. I think the break even for Saudi's bearable is like sixty, but that's it's probably a lot lower than that. That's like the public number. 
But yeah, so the basic system is that there's a lot of these, you know, Eurasian, authoritarian inclined states that have that are usually either in control of hard natural resources or dominant or dominant global production, which means they, they accumulate massive amounts of surpluses. So those surpluses are mainly dollars. And then the balance of payments in the global system have to be balanced by net deficits. So as they accumulate ever larger surpluses, the West has to accumulate ever larger deficits. And so UK and India and um, you know, a, lot of, a lot of Europe, especially Southern Europe and, uh, and the US have to run massive deficits. That's why we're running, you know, historically large deficits. Um, we have to, this is the balance of payments. The system as it sort of worked uh, is that those, those surpluses have to get recycled into our assets. So, you know, we sell off basically our equities, our sports teams, our real estate, um, you know, our like anything that's like desirable that, that these um, foreign reserve managers want to buy, they buy it. And so like it has really distorted our economy, right? Because it means that, uh, a large portion of our economy for the past, you know, 50 years, really in the past 20 some years after China came into in, uh, WTO and it was accelerated or turbocharged this recycling system, is that like the sectors of our economy that benefited from that were like the fire sectors. So finance, insurance, real estate, the parts of our, our, of our economy that were basically designed to take these global capital flows from China, from Saudi Arabia, from Russia, and funnel them into their economies, like funnel them into you know, fancy Knightsbridge real estate in, in London, right? Mm -hmm. Funnel them into wealth management products in, in you know, from, from JP Morgan or, 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 um, or Goldman Sachs. Fund them into, uh, you know, our tech firms, right? Why Saudi is like a major equity holder, or was an equity holder and still has, a, I think, a position in the capital stack in, uh, in Twitter. Um, so there's like, there's a reason why these, these and these, uh, like the GCC and China and Russia have like oligarchs and a lot of like, uh, equity investment and control over like, Western firms. And this has actually created a lot of national security concerns inside the intelligence community because these are uh, very often used as mechanisms for influence campaigns um, that the Chinese are really good at, right? In terms of like co-opting Western elites to, you know, defang elite, uh, you know, what would always be like elite resistance to the rise of a competitor power. If you're getting rich off of them, maybe you're okay with that, right? Case in point, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater, right? Who his firm manages like Chinese state assets. Okay, like this is what you would expect. Like this is this is you know, not going to be people that are going to be for breaking the system. Um, and here's my new book. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is the this is the challenge we're in though, and this doesn't mean like they have everyone checkmated because China domestically has its own major economic issues, right? They have to. They have massive overinvestment in their um, industrial capacity that they've tried to export, you know, demand to BRI, right? So they take dollars from their surpluses and they basically do dollar lending to- BRI, Brazil, the, Russia, India? Uh, the Belt and no. Road Initiative. Oh, sorry. This is the major geoeconomic- yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, I know. Of, yeah, so they have, you know, lent, you know, or mostly, yeah, lent about trillion dollars to African countries, South, South American countries, even across Eurasia, um, even to, like Montenegro, like they have like a bridge that they still owe. That's like the, the debt payments on that bridge is like something like 12% of their GDP. It's like the same thing. <laughs> or a uh, fucking bridge, really? Yeah, it's, it was a big scandal. Um, or Sri Lanka, like there's a row that costs like $40 million a kilometer. Um, big, big, big scandals here. Um, but yeah, so they've used the dollar system that they accumulate these dollar surpluses and they weaponize it by you know, embarking on this program of strategic influence. Um, and they had a really clever arrangement where 
not just like ports, but often like resource projects, like offshore drilling or mines or whatever, and they collateralize the loan with the revenues. And so they take the revenues from those projects and they park them into two funds that they manage offshore. One is to repay the loan. It's like the, the stream of you know, interest payments, essentially. And the other is like, is, is essentially the, the profit from that, that project goes into an offshore fund that the Chinese control, the Chinese uh, state-owned enterprise usually controls. And it's, it's, like the, it's like the collateral that if you default on the loan, you know, weak frontier market, we'll just take all this. Like what would otherwise be your profit from this whole project, we'll just take it instead. Um, and that's how they've collateralized a lot of these BRI loans. Um, and it's usually people say the BRIs have blown back in SOE's faces because, and that is like for some of these projects, they have blown up, but not all of those flows are accounted for. <laughs> a lot of this is in offshore money centers where they're, they're going back to the Chinese in other ways. Um, and so yeah, this has become one of the major critiques I have of uh, you know, the, the current, uh, you know, like the net net, is the global dollar system good for the United States, right? It's like, well, it's generated a whole bunch of these political pathologies where we've deindustrialized the Midwest, created a lot of, of you know, political frictions as a result to the relative advantage of you know, economic sectors that maybe aren't all that net productive or innovative, like the finance, insurance, real estate sectors. Um, and it has become a major mechanism by which our adversaries, especially these um, Eurasian autocrats, can buy up our, our most valuable assets and also spread strategic influence throughout um, uh, the Eurasian periphery in their attempt to you know, get those countries on their side. Like there's a statistic that for every, um, 10% more that a typical or an average African country votes in alignment with China at the UN General Assembly, they could expect to see 86% more Chinese BRI funding. So there's a clear like geoeconomic link between uh, BRI and you know strategic influence in in these in these uh, in these in these in these parts of the world where we are trying to compete. Um, and Africa is one of those places where. Like all the raw all the raw materials for the <laughs> future of the uh, the energy transition are going to be coming out of these countries. And China has a like one of their top priorities is to dominate um, the renewable uh, uh, you know energy uh, industry, just like you know Saudi Arabia dominates um, oil. Uh, and so they are trying to lock up a lot of these you know uh, critical inputs to solar power manufacture, battery uh, battery production. And they want to locate the futures markets for those commodities in China, uh, unlike where the, right now the, the futures markets for most commodities are in the United States. Yeah, I listened to the Rogan show with a guy who talks about the cobalt mining mm -hmm. in um, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Did you hear it? Uh, I saw the clips and yeah, I followed the story. Yeah. I mean, it's well worth a listen yeah. to, but he talks about large, a large majority of those mines are owned by Chinese companies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is, in fact, uh, I think there was an American company that used to own it and, you know, there was such a, you know, moral and like public backlash or sort of, you know, uh, dissuasion against being involved in that, that they, they divested and the Chinese said, okay, we'll take it. Yeah, we don't um, give a fuck. They, yeah, they don't care. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, these, uh, the SOEs have been sort of given free reign by the, by the Chinese government to, you know, just go out there and make a buck. Um, and so, yeah, they don't have as much moral compulsion, environmental compulsion uh, as Western firms do. Uh, Human yeah. rights compulsion. No, no, by no means. Um, yeah, and actually one of the interesting challenges recently has been one of the critiques about, okay, China's got all this BRI funding, but they don't have the military capability to back it up, right? So, okay, they have these loans, but they don't have a fifth fleet. 
they don't have aircraft carriers that can, you know, have a, you know, blue water, you know, cross-continental power projection capability. Um, and actually what China is really innovating on in a lot of these countries is uh, you don't need those types of military capabilities to really enforce these hard, these natural resource claims. What you need are um, proxy uh, allies that you can get on your board, as well as private military companies. So PMCs is what they're called. And so China has really invested a lot in like their equivalent to like the Wagner Group, although they're not as bloodthirsty psychopaths like like the Wagner Group is from Russia. Um, but they're like professional mercenaries, right? They're not official, you know, Chinese military officers. Um, they are private. They're like Blackwater, basically. In fact, Blackwater contracted with Chinese government. Uh, well, it wasn't Blackwater, but it was Eric Prince's other company, um, Frontier Resources Group in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Africa to do some of this stuff. Um, so they're actually able to effectively project military power where it's needed in an asymmetric way. Um, the US government has you know, a lot of special operations capability in Africa to try to do something similar, um, you know, where we have host government agreements to you know, do counterterrorism missions that happen to be near strategic resources. Uh, but this is, I think, a, some of the canards that are pl you know, played around to sort of um, be skeptical of China's ability to enforce these geoeconomic um, patterns of, of, of influence because they don't have you know, 11 aircraft carriers. And it's true, they don't have those, but I think they yeah, don't need those yeah. necessarily. Well, yeah, well, and they're building them quickly. They're building them, yeah. They have, and this is a, you know. Didn't they you, just launch one recently? They have the Liaoniang, uh, which is their major flagship aircraft carrier. I think they're building another one. Uh, and they got a, one more on the way after that. Yeah, their shipbuilding capacity is, is enormous. Um, they have by far the largest shipbuilding capacity in the world, uh, mostly for commercial shipping, but it's, you know, that infrastructure is used for, uh, you know, like, you know, naval buildup. And they have embarked on the largest military modernization in history. You know, like the U.S. government typically isn't histrionic when it comes to doing these sorts of assessments. But if you read, you know, statements of, of like, you know, the deputy, uh, uh, like different deputy assistant secretaries for like strategy force planning from the Pentagon, like they'll, they'll come out with pretty, pretty like uh, strong statements assessing how quickly China's uh, capabilities have improved and how concerned they are about the deterrence capabilities of the United States relative to, to what China's been able to do um, across lots of different domains. And, you know, a lot of my day job is also related to like cyber security. And so cyber is a major domain that stretches not just like the commercial environment, but obviously the strategic environment. And space. Space is becoming like a, a, a critical domain of a competition. And China is a major space player, like very big in space. Um, so, yeah, there's, a, you know, I, I'm not like a China bull. Right? But I think they have a lot of demographic issues. Their political system isn't all that innovative. They've got a strongman leader um, who doesn't necessarily listen to his advisors on things. Uh, they have a lot of problems. They've got, you know, these massive debt loads. So, but I think people that, you know, underestimate, you know, rising um, uh, aspirant uh, revengeous powers, you know, history tells you that you, know, you should keep an eye out. You mapped out a scenario or scenarios uh, in your article. Can mm -hmm. you talk me through that? Certainly. So there's been some, a lot of like, um, you know, hot topic in the like geoeconomic uh, monetary discussion a lot of it's precipitated by a certain analyst named Zoltan Poznar from Credit Suisse, who's you know, written a number of these um, kind of notes articulating what he calls kind of Bretton Woods three thesis, which he sort of updated and refined. And just in the past you know, few uh, weeks, he sort of released sort of different versions of it. Um, it's quite complicated, so I don't want to go through all of it. But, yeah. but the basic premise is, um, is what we sort of were talking about before, which is can China 
create um, a uh, economic arrangement that gives them some of the similar benefits that the U.S. has. Like that's their like overall objective. If you think like longer term, is they want to have their own sphere of influence that you know eliminates all of their dependence uh, and uh, you know removes any potential coercive power the United States has over them. So that's like the high level objective, so that the CCP can endure indefinitely and they can have the great you know rejuvenation of the Chinese people, achieve the great Chinese dream, and you know resolve the, the Taiwan question in our generation. These are like the major commitments that they've made to the public. So these are like the high level strategic objectives. Those translate to having a regional balance of power arrangement that's in their favor. That includes also bilateral trade arrangements, uh, trade agreements. And, and an economic and monetary arrangement that is not subject to U.S. influence or control. That's like that's like the high-level strategic objective. Now, how they get there is like the is like the key question, right? And can they get there? And what's the pathway that they'll try to get to that point? And I think, you know, for me, I think they have a, an approach. You know, it's it's quite complicated. But in my sort of simple fish brain, it's like first starting with um, uh, building up some of the like. Alternative infrastructure, in like as like the in case, right? So right now they mostly use Swift, just like everyone else does. Um, right now they, you know, engage heavily in the global dollar clearing system with Western banks. You know, they're intimately connected into the global euro dollar system. They have, you know, over a trillion dollars in U.S. Treasury securities. So they haven't like decided to do that break yet, right? Um, so they're not like they haven't gone really that far down that road yet. But what they have done is built up. Some of these alternative infrastructures, so that they have like the systems in place in like proto form, one to like maybe gradually uh, grow and mature over time, or as like a backup plan in case they get locked out. And so this, you know, two big ones really are, you know, DCEP, the Digital Currency Electronic Payment, like the like that's basically the the technology package for the digital yuan that they're trying to export along BRI, but they're sort of testing it in different countries and setting it up more in like these prototype stages. Uh, including domestically, they like really launched it officially um, at the the Winter Olympics. So it's still very early in in its sort of development. And then it's SIPs, the sort of cross-border interbank uh, settlement systems. They're really trying to build their own terms to basically Fedwire and Swift. That's like first one. So the their strategy is really just like block, then build, and then expand. So that's like across lots of domains. It's been their strategy. Like in the South China Sea, it's been the same strategies. Like. First, like invest in denial weapons so that like they can block U.S. military from like doing too much in their immediate proximity. And then they want to build. They want to build the islands physically. They actually built you know islands in the South China Sea. Um, and then they want to expand. They want to like uh, you know eventually they want to you know push us out. They want to push. They want to reset the balance of power in uh, in, the, in the South China Sea. They want to do that. I think similarly in the economic domain, um, but it takes a lot of time. So they want to. They want to block first uh, and just like protect themselves. They want to build these infrastructures and then they want to expand them. And that's how they get to that expansion stage. There's a lot of debate right now. And it's for me, it's a little bit more speculative. Um, but you can see things happening with these arrangements with the GCC, with Saudi Arabia, with Russia, for example, like over 50% of the bilateral trade between Russia and China um, is in Yuan. When it was like I don't know 10% before the war, so like dramatically shifted to the point where that's basically completely de-dollarized. So all these arrangements, you know, any individual piece you can be kind of skeptical of, right? How much oil trade is going to be settled in yuan, uh, in the rupee, in the ruble, and it's probably not going to make much of a difference in the near term. But I think they're trying to like 
put in place the infrastructure, the bilateral like political agreements first. And then once the political agreements uh, uh, are in place, you know, they can then co coerce or influence major institutional players to make those shifts. Because they're not going to happen organically in a market. <laughs> like, like no one's going to market demand the yuan, right? <laughs> right? But if most sovereign wealth funds and major institutional players are basically coerced because access to the Chinese market, access to you know, critical commodities is like kind of geopolitically contingent, that's, that's going to be the major pivot point, right? Is when people don't you know, voluntarily really adopt the yuan, but if you, know, you want to keep selling to us, or you want to keep uh, you know, trading with us, you have to use the DCEP. You have to basically agree to settle with us. Um, that could be the thing that shifts the balance. And that's where we're not there yet. And they haven't pulled that card because they know that card will be likely like the point at which they're going to be um, challenged by the United States and across all, all, a lot of other domains. Like these aren't going to happen in a vacuum. There's going to be like the United States is not just going to take this lying down, right? Yeah, we're not course. just going to like let this happen. We're going to do lots of things, you know, to, to contest this. Um, and that those that's going to be a very messy um, dynamic. That's really what we're going to see take place in the next, you know, three to five years, I think. It all feels a little bit like this, like, how much can I push you? How much, just like test a bit more, test a bit more. Yeah, I mean, China has been very um, sophisticated in how they think about, I mean, it's like literally like the, the famous uh, slogan from Deng Xiaoping was, uh, hide your strength, bide your time, right? And which is like, it's kind of a clue, right? It's like, what are you biding your time for? Why are you hiding your strength, right? Like the idea was their weak power uh, when they, you know, first you know, kind of shed, shed, shed Mao. And they had to, you know, embark on this program of global integration. But they knew that that created lots of risks, especially after a post-Soviet collapse to their system of government and their personal, their personal safety and their livelihoods. And so they had a very, um, you know, they had, they had to think uh, strategically. There's a, there's a book called The Long Game by Rush Doshi, who's actually currently the director for China policy on the National Security Council, and his PhD thesis turned into this book, is like a systematic analysis of Chinese government documents to try to unpack and make a case that uh, they actually have a grand strategy. And most countries don't have a grand strategy. And his closest analogy would be like Bismarck's Germany. And a grand strategy is where a country's, um, all the instruments of national power and bureaucratic um, plans and agency um, resources are pretty effectively aligned over a long period of time to achieve like a high level national strategic objective. And that is usually most countries don't have that, right? Most countries are just like, what's our next year's budget? This is our planning documents. We want to have, you know, you know, new investments in X, Y, or Z. But uh, he makes it case like China has this pretty clear grand strategy to, um, to grow into a, to, a, to a global power. And this translates into a lot of different activities across multiple domains. Um, but one of those critical domains was in like strategic influence. This has been very underplayed and still is a kind of underplayed. The, the degree to which China's be really effective at conducting um, kind of sub-threshold gray zone activities as well as like influence operations in the West. And that's mainly been conducted in the West by the Ministry of State Security, which is their equivalent to the CIA. Um, and this started really in the 80s. And there's a book called Spies and Lies by a researcher from um, uh, Australia named um, Alex Josky. And he really like unpacked how like China was really sophisticated at using these front organizations for cultural exchange, trade exchange, and a lot of like Westerners that wanted to do business in China would go through these sort of uh, sort of middlemen, right? Like we can get you the meetings with the local provincial official, et cetera, but you come through me and we'll help you basically, um, you know, 
get, get that business. And they were all intelligence officers, basically. And so they're not doing the traditional work of spying, which is like, I recruit you as an asset inside you know, the government and you give me the secret documents and, you know, and, on the, in, the, in the fake rock, right, kind of thing. It was just like developing friendships, developing relationships, um, nurturing you know, upstart political uh, aspirants you know, in like, local councils before they become major political officials. Like, they had a very sophisticated long-term view of how to develop these relationships over time and really strategically influence our political conversation, our our economic conversation to basically, and one of the like, critical um, priorities for the MSS, like starting in the 90s, was like convince the West that China getting rich is good. <laughs> convince the West that, op- that, that us uh, climbing the ladder of technology and getting richer and getting more powerful is good. And this was like believed, right? We actually thought that we could convert them to the liberal order. And this was like, this was an influence operation. This was like, this was a psychological operation to convince us that this would happen, that, that they would democratize as they got wealthy and they would, you know, liberalize their political system. They would do these experiments in local elections, et cetera. And it was all basically um, confection. It was, it was a way to kind of, um, and we were willing to believe that because we just want to make a lot of money, right? <laughs> um, and now we're waking up belatedly to the fact that, you know, they have no intention of liberalizing as a, as a, as a as a, as a ruling state. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the major recognition that, that it has occurred gradually. And then now is, you know, is, has definitely solidified in the major political um, and, you know, kind of policy circles in, in, in the West, especially the United States. And now it's translating into these actions, right? Like total economic war, essentially just try to halt China's technological advancement, um, you know, massive pressure campaigns, like really trying to, uh, you know, take on, China as a, as a major sort of pacing threat to, to the United States. All right. So, look, we've covered a lot of geopolitical mm-hmm. stuff here. Um, going back to the original mm-hmm. uh, title of the article, the future geopolitical order and Bitcoin initial mm-hmm. assessment. So what is the role of Bitcoin in all of this? What is the potential? What is your thesis here? Yeah. So I could see it play out in different ways. One in particular. So Bitcoin just as a monetary network and as a... Um, uh, neutral reserve asset has very valuable properties that could make it play like a role in a system that is lacking this type of um, trust in the legacy fiat issuers, and also trust, uh, and also lacks trust in like the rising challenge, right? Like I don't think people are necessarily going to trust the Chinese yuan or Chinese government bonds any more than they trust dollars or U.S. Treasury securities. Even if they sort of have to hedge in this bipolar system, does it mean they're going to like shift to the yuan as like the new? top dog, right? Um, and, and, and possibly trust it less, but have to use it. Yeah, and again, but you can, and so you could see like a, a rebalancing, right? But it doesn't mean the dollar is going to lose its overall dominance. Um, but it doesn't mean that there's a role for something like Bitcoin to take, take sort of a different position in uh, the sort of asset allocation portfolio for sovereign wealth managers, right? So if you're taking the perspective of someone in, say, Qatar or another GCC country that's looking across their sovereign wealth funds and saying, okay, I've got X amount of Western equities, X amount of Western and other real estate. I've got these mines. I've got, you know, these just basic dollar balances and deposits and and U.S. Treasury security holdings. It's not an insane proposition for me to, to put forward that them allocating some small percentage to Bitcoin in the next several years, you know, is not a possibility. 
right? And, and you can imagine them taking like a flyer on it, right, to start. Um, but there is this sort of dynamic where, okay, they're going to experiment with it, they're going to test it out, but if a few do it in a small scale, it could, be, could become successful. And I think their alternatives are not that great, but, you know, there's a great paper by... Um, a Harvard uh, you know, econ graduate named Matthew Ferranti. And it's a very technical kind of mathematical paper. It's a model, like all models that has assumptions that you could argue with, but it's a good kind of first rigorous attempt to try to um, put some math behind this question of as the sort of geopolitical risk premium goes up from say sanctions risk, two countries that are marginally geopolitically disaligned with the United States, how, how would you expect that to change their portfolio allocation away from say fiat reserves to both gold and Bitcoin. And he has this model and he plugs in different assumptions and you can do kind of the parameter space and see, okay, if it's a high risk, you know, or the different, you know, assumptions about Bitcoin versus gold, you get a different distribution. But like the bottom line of the model was like, you know, even in like a more conservative scenario, you get to like a single digit percentage allocation kind of makes sense from like a risk weighted perspective to, to some of those countries. Um, and so that's like an interesting, like that's interesting, like, thesis to have. Um, we need to talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you should. Um, and you can certainly explain his model better than I can. Uh, but that, that puts something on the board that I don't think was, was on the board before. Um, and it changes the dynamic because a lot of these countries, one, like can't custody their own gold, right? So I think like people will just go to gold as an, as an alternative, but gold actually has a lot of disadvantages. The reason why gold failed as a global monetary um, reserve asset is because it's difficult to transport, to secure, to verify, um, it means it's like usually ends up being centralized in the global hegemonic vaults, anyways. Like most gold is right now. I think most, uh, you know, most of the gold in the world is held uh, in 66 Liberty Street, you know, underneath the underneath the New York Fed. Do we believe that? Uh, well, I don't know. You know, diehard whatever that that, that <laughs> the uh, the the robbery with ticket. a vengeance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, literally. And so, like, you know, if you're worried about the treasury securities that you hold being seized. Like, well, then the gold in a vault and the New York Fed doesn't help you at all, right? Um, so unless you're prepared to actually self-custody your gold, which is a pretty, you know, like Saudi Arabia could do that. Some of these big Gulf powers could do that. But like the average sort of emerging market, it's going to be expensive. And sometimes it may, may, may not make a whole lot of sense just to transact in this. Like, so it's like the, the uh, it doesn't, uh, it starts to add a whole lot of frictional cost. Um, even if it was like a necessity, it would just, it would quickly become unworkable, I think, for a lot of those countries. And they would have to resort to the same sort of thing, which is paper claims on the gold that are held by some other power on your behalf. And you're just, you know, choosing a different sovereign to sort of derogate, um, to sort of derogate your, uh, your monetary sovereignty to. Um, so Bitcoin is an interesting uh, alternative because you don't have to take all those settlement, um, uh, you know, frictional costs because it's just a digitally native asset that you can just transfer over this um, centrist persistent network. And it's super easy to ch and cheap to self-custody with like high-level security equivalent to gold security to a certain extent if you have good custody practices. So this is a different type of asset whose sort of monetary properties, you know, scarcity and its sort of bare nature make it like gold to a certain extent. But its settlement, um, as, as a settlement system, it's got the sort of uh, efficiencies of the traditional fiat system. So it's kind of mixing a SWIFT and a Fedwire with the treasury security into one kind of standalone package. Um, now it's very speculative, right? So that's got to be priced in, right? This is what Matt does in the model is, okay, like clearly Bitcoin is much more volatile than, than any other like current sovereign reserve asset. So it would be foolhardy to allocate like a large portion of your, um, 
of your uh, of your holdings to it. But uh, but yeah, but like a small few percentage points to start, uh, especially for folks that have a high sanctions risk and that otherwise can't self custody gold. Like the model says, it makes sense to do that. Um, and that's I think how you could see it start. And that's like anything else, right? Like start small, and then as 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 the market grows because of that initial sorry, um, capital injection, like f- in my basic under- you know assumptions about Bitcoin's volatilities, it will generally correspond to adoption and size, right? It just takes more inflows and outflows to cause the same level of price movement. So as it gets larger, volatility kind of has to come down to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah. Um, so as volatility comes down, becomes you know the risk premium associated with the volatility also comes down, which means you know. Your portfolio allocation is more goes up, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's how you could see this play out, right? Which is why you know I wouldn't ascribe like 100% probability to that, um, but I think it's not being looked at properly as like a realistic scenario. If, say by 2030, you could have several countries that have um, you know meaningful holdings of Bitcoin, um, you know, as part of this you know <laughs> rejigger geoeconomic arrangement, and this is like a way for them to hedge. Do you think the U.S. government should be encouraging this? Though? Well, so this is the key thing, right? I think. This is a ace in the hole for U.S. geostrategic interests to a certain extent that we can leverage Bitcoin's monetization with uh, stablecoin growth. This is a whole separate conversation, but like you can imagine the competition between uh, Bitcoin isn't really with the U.S. dollar; it's with U.S. Treasury security and compete and competitors for U.S. Treasury security, namely gold. Um, but you don't have to give up the dollar's preeminence uh, uh, in the process. You can leverage. You know what is very strong endogenous demand for dollars around the world via you know crypto dollars, right? So stable coins, um, and a synergistic relationship can emerge between uh, demand in a lot of these countries for dollars that are really hard to get. They would not; they would rather transact in crypto dollars like uh, Tether and other versions of, like that could come down the line than like the digital you want. And that uh, spreads demand for dollars. And if you have a proper regulatory framework for stablecoins that reserves them, um, you know, so you don't get these like stablecoin blows up uh, or sort of frauds, uh, that you could you know, see dollarization take place in a much more stable way around the world than actually it happens today. Right now, dollarization is a very unstable process uh, offshore, right? It is you know, your dollar balance, uh, balances that are like hot money flows. Um, and they rely on treasury security collateral. And so when you have runs in the offshore dollar system, it's the treasury securities that get fire sold. And that's what causes the Fed to come out with these swap lines and liquidity facilities and repo facilities to reliquify the offshore dollar system to prevent like a total collapse of the monetary region. So we've created this like this gun to our own head by 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 making the treasury security critical collateral for the offshore dollar system. That dollar system has to keep expanding. That puts a lot more fragility on their treasury security. That is uh, a source of geoeconomic vulnerability to us. So having stable coins monetize alongside Bitcoin, it also doesn't hurt help, uh, hurt the fact that Americans hold a lot more Bitcoin. Than yeah. a lot of other countries in the world. So Bitcoin monetizes relative to other countries. Essentially, it's a form of like seniorage, right? Yeah. Because their capital inflows to buy Bitcoin, you know, make our Bitcoin worth more. And so we accrue value, right, from their capital inflows into the overall network. And also control a lot of the infrastructure in terms of a lot of the major companies are have been established in the US, mm-hmm. are being established in the US. So it gives a lot more control there as well. A bit like with the internet. Yeah, I mean, control is an interesting dynamic. It's when not it comes controller to, yeah. than the network or the code as such, but do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, well, I, I think when it comes to like, what sort of value system does Bitcoin represent? It represents a system of you know, 
like individual autonomy, right? The the ability to transact peer to peer, the idea that you know you have property rights, you can custody what you want. Um, like reinforces the ability to like uh, express yourself. Like these are sort of like natural liberal values um, that are sort of antithetical to the system that China's trying to set up, right? So you can imagine this is like in alignment with US like political interests. Um, but you also have a challenge with the fact that, you know, China is trying to impose their political views, you know, in this sort of subtle way by exporting their sort of technology stack. Um, and Bitcoin is sort of, you know, represents like a very sort of, that diametrically opposed vision of a technology stack for a new internet, right? The internet has sort of become more centralized, more, you know, with surveillance built into it, right? And I think people see, you know, the trend lines of, um, you know, tech balkanization um, being a major issue, right? Where data localization is going to be a major thing. You know, tech companies are going to have to locate data, say, on Indian users in India. Their algorithms are going to be subject to state review and approval. I think this sort of open era of the internet that people still maybe think exists is, is going to die. <laughs> um, and I think Bitcoin represents this sort of last hope that maybe you can have something still like a global open internet. Um, and it may not represent, you know, this is, I think, what some of the work with like Web5 is about, right? Not the Web3 nonsense, but, you know, actually building in decentralized identity applications and, and building in other, other applications on top of the basic network that can, you know, create, you know, a different type of internet than than what we've sort of evolved into that is maybe not you know fully aligned with our our, our moral or our political interests. Um, yeah, and it helps the fact that you know Bitcoin companies are here, Bitcoin innovators are here. Um, I think people have a lot of I don't know I think Bitcoin's kind of a trigger word. People start to think about it as like associated with people they don't like or political ideologies they don't like. I look at it as just like a technology stack um, that is going to potentially offer us a you know, a novel geopolitical solution slash backup plan um, in case our adversaries succeed in, in, uh, in, in destabilizing the current geoeconomic arrangement. Um, and yeah, I think we need to be seeking how we can you know, use it to our advantage. Um, and, and not just our advantage, but advantage of everyone around the world, right? If you think about what the function of a global reserve asset is, is it's something that you hold your savings in and what you think is the safest, you know, thing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the dollar via treasury securities was like that for institutions, right? But like the average person in emerging market, even the average American doesn't hold a U.S. treasury security, right? I mean, only like, like so a subset of people that actually hold like money market funds are sophisticated enough or even have enough free capital to like invest can hold bonds. But the vast majority of the world can't hold a treasury security. And so that like, I think implicitly you know, weights the power dynamic towards large institutions, especially in countries where the institutions are not all that, you know, liberal, right? And so it puts a lot of the power in these, in these countries, you know, into the hands of those, you know, elite um, structures, like the sovereign wealth funds, the central banks, the government elites, and the people don't have access to those resources. They just sort of get managed by, by the political system. Um, oftentimes not on their behalf. And so Bitcoin offers a premise of like, here's a global reserve asset that's like global reserve asset for the people. Like an individual can hold a tiny amount of Bitcoin on their phone, uh, can also has it with like dollar-based stable coins and can you know, engage in a global marketplace, maybe with these other applications and do an end run around their oppressive um, government. Uh, it's like, that's, that's pretty encouraging. 
also like more speculative, but like really encouraging is, is a company called, um, called Bridger Solutions that is just starting up uh, mining operations in Africa. And they're you know, going to scout these, uh, you know, these, these you know, power facilities that like have been funded by Chinese loans, like major like hydro and wind farms that, you know, were built because of some vanity or political uh, reason. And now they have no interconnection to any, any load center. So it's like 50, 100 megawatt wind farms, hydropower uh, plants, just stranded assets basically. And, you know, oh, perfect place for Bitcoin miners to go, help the local community essentially monetize these assets. I think it was a company <gasps> called, called Gridless in, in Kenya doing these things. And yeah, like, we, uh, we tried yeah. to speak to, what's his name? Eric. Eric, yeah. We tried mm -hmm. to speak to him and he, uh, we agreed to do the show remotely, obviously, mm -hmm. because he's in, uh, I think it was in Kenya or something at the mm -hmm. time. And I think he kind of did it with an iPhone <laughs> on top of a hill and we could see like like this. It was at strike. the actual facility. Yeah, it was at the yeah. facility, but like the connection was shit. So we've had to defer it. But we got to get the guy on we'll the show. Yeah. Next week. Uh, next week. Yeah, we're going to get him on the phone. Yeah, so, so these Bridger guys, they, they actually come from the US military and the State Department. Okay. So they actually worked in Africa for many years. Like they know the political terrain and they know like, how Africa has become the site of geoeconomic uh, great power competition between US, Russia, and China operating in these countries, control over natural resources, trying to influence the host government. Um, and here these are like, well, they're also Bitcoiners, but they're like, hey, like we can essentially like take the Chinese funded asset, mine Bitcoin with it, and it's an American company doing it, right? Like this is, this is like, and we're, and we're basically teleporting the Bitcoin out from, you know, the middle of the jungle, right? And so you don't have the traditional problems of like getting like a traditional... Like if you want to monetize that sort of in, you know resource in those countries, it's challenging, right? You've got to get the inputs out, and you've got to get them, you know, get them in, then get them out, yeah. cross borders, etc. Bitcoin is like a novel sort of commodity in the sense that you can monetize these assets in these countries, uh, and then essentially teleport them out. Um, uh, and yeah, so I think that's a, and you can do this, you know, I think they're doing some, you know, looking at setting up some pilots to do this. So, uh, uh, but that's a, I think, interesting like alignment between you know, monetizing Chinese funded uh, renewable energy projects that are not actually helping the local communities, you know, with Bitcoin mining in a way that, you know, reinforces, you know, American values and American economic interests in these countries that are the site of intense geopolitical, you know, like influence. Like this is like speculative. It's not like game changing. This isn't going to like tip the balance of scales between the US and China by any means, but like that's like an underplayed, you it's know, funny. Yeah. It's like, it's like, that's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. That you'd think that was, that was possible. Um, but yeah, that's, I think, uh, an interesting, um, thing to keep an eye on. Okay. So, uh, how do people find more? How do they go and find, I mean, we'll put it in the show notes, but like, how do they go and read this? Yeah. So this was published in, uh, the censorship resistant issue of Bitcoin magazine, um, six months ago. It's okay. on their website. Uh, I think it's Bitcoin, the future geopolitical order. Um, uh, an initial assessment. Uh, yeah, so you can go on the Bitcoin Magazine website. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Matthew underscore Pines. Uh, yeah, I'll be, uh, simply separately, I'll be releasing just a, a random novel I wrote, so that'll be fun. What? Yeah. A random novel? Yeah, yeah. I had some free time before I started this new job last year, and I just sort of wrote this thing, and yeah. So... <laughs> What's it about? Can you tell anything? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's basically about um, it sort of mixes spies technology altogether. So basically, it's got uh, Russian spies, uh, corporate thugs, all chasing a uh, and uh, and some like tech cult billionaires uh, chasing a physicist with uh, breakthrough technology in his head. So it's about AI, quantum computing, 
spies, all right, that sort man. of stuff. Maybe check that out on my next holiday. Yeah. All right, Wicked Matthew, always good to see you. I uh, appreciate you coming on and talking through this. It's a lot to, lot to think about this, but very interesting. And yeah, good luck with everything you do. I'm sure we'll see you here again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, man. All right, what did you make of that monster? What a show, right? Matthew's incredible. What a knowledgeable guy. And so many other things we talked about even after the show. We started talking about aliens. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to get him back on the show and talk about that at some point. But yeah, really great to get him on the show. We have linked that article in the show notes, so please do go and check it out. Um, and we're here in Nashville, I think, for another three days, and then we're going to be heading out to Austin. Hopefully going to meet up with some of you out there. I hope you've all had a great week, and I will see you all next week.